We will never leave you. Even in the face of our death. The richness of our lives shall be yours. All that I have, all that I've learned, everything I feel, all this and more, I... I bequeath you, my son. You will carry me inside you. All the days of your life. You will make my strength your own. See my life through your eyes. As your life will be seen through mine. The son becomes the father. The father the son. This is all I... All I can send you. Come out. Men in a Retrospective Podcast, Superman Retrospective Series. Hi. Superman? That's me. From 1978 Superman, all the way through 2016, Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, Garrett. How can one man be so square and so delicious? Matt. I'm long past saving. And Adam. You diseased maniac. We'll look at all the Kryptonian Sun's cinematic adventures. The problem with Men of Steel, there's never one around when you want one. Was Richard Donner's vision of Superman deserving of its iconic reputation? Easy, miss. I've got you. You, you've got me! Who's got you?! Superman returns as bad as it's reputed to be. Hey, you know something? You're a real pain in the neck. What about 1984's Supergirl? Well, we really better talk. Find out the answers to all these questions and more coming up, courtesy of Percolated Media. This order's to go. Man of Steel. Adam, didn't you and I play a Nintendo game? It was a hockey game called that. Well, wait, that was Blades of Steel. Blades of Steel. Was, <laughs> budget on this was $258 million. Box office, $668 million. And this is directed by the gentleman we were returning to after a year off, Mr. Zack Snyder. Man of Steel. Oh, boy. You know, this was one of those movies that Matt... I believe you and I had started our friendship around the time that this movie was coming out, and I think we saw the hype of it, the two of us, correct? So, the timeline is correct, but I think we were the only two people that were not throwing haymakers back and forth over the internet when this movie came out. I'm going to say a statement that I firmly believe in my lifetime, certainly within the last decade, I guess a little bit over since this is over 10 years old now, 
I think this is the most divisive blockbuster that has been made within the last 15 years. It is as 50-50 as you can find, whether you go on the people who love it, the people who hate it. I don't know a lot of people who are really indifferent, and it was fervorous when this came out. I mean, I walked out of that theater having no idea, A, processing it on my own, and B, the wars that were going to come out of this movie. And I thought Prometheus was divisive enough, but this was like a whole different level. It was uncanny, and yeah, you and I were definitely privy to that. Now, Adam, you and I had rekindled our friendship by the time this movie was coming out. Mm-hmm. We also, we, we kind of shared the trailers back and forth, and we were kind of getting ready for it. Now, you have been outspoken as being more of a Batman person than a Superman person. How were you feeling in the lead-up to Man of Steel? Gearing up for it, I didn't really care. The trailers underwhelmed me. I know some people loved it, loved what they did. I grew sick and tired after the first tra- first time I saw the first trailer of just watching that sonic boom over and over and over. I think the between the teaser, between the theatrical trailer, and then as DC has been wont to do ever since, like the three-minute trailer, and my just kind of anathema for Superman, I didn't care. Zack Snyder wasn't, you know, somebody that I was going to ride or die for. We'll get into Watchmen at some point. We'll get into some other stuff, so I'll save those thoughts. But he wasn't, you know, I'm not in the cult of Snyder, so there was nothing about this that drove me to the movie theater. And I saw it, but I don't think I saw it opening weekend. I might have just because I was still going to go see a Superman movie, but I, I want to say it was the second or third weekend that I finally got around to it. Yeah, I was set to review this, and I went to an early screening of it. I went to it four days before it was coming out, and I'm not sure if I revealed this on the last podcast I did about this movie or not. I'm pretty sure I told Adam this. Maybe I told you, Matt. But in that screening, I fell asleep. There was a good... I I did a Matt at Superman Returns. There was a good 15, 20 (laughs) minutes that I missed when I went to that screening. It was a long week. I was exhausted. I sat down to watch this, and it's not a short movie, and... All I know is when I fell asleep, Clark was talking to his mom, and when I woke up, he was up in the sky fighting some Matrix-looking thing. So I read my review. I think my review came out okay. I gave this, I think I gave this movie a 7 out of 10 when it was released, and I still got shit for that. That's not a bad score. And I got hell on the internet after that score. It's not surprising you say that, because this was the movie, if you didn't give it a 1, or if you didn't give it a 10... Your opinion was not worth reading to the eyes of the internet. I was about to say the exact same thing. This seems to have, if not started, really just brought it. The the only movie opinions are all or nothing. It's a binary choice. And it started here. It's grown into Star Wars. It's grown into every other other non-Marvel movie, I guess, you know, (laughs) Um, that you either have to love it or hate it, and there's no middle ground. And, yeah, to Matt's point, I think it really, really started here. I think a lot of the divisiveness and a lot of the passion people felt for this movie had a lot to do with the movies we reviewed earlier this year. I think a lot of people have an affinity for those re-films. I mean, we had a filmmaker that we reviewed last week try to do that exact thing with the exact sensibility and not exactly have it come out very well. well. And that's the crazy part. You're talking about movies that are decades old, 40 years old, and there's, what, one and a half good movies in there. The nostalgia factor has never been able to leave the S. Two and a half if you count Superman 3. Um. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the tra- the teaser trailer 
mostly it was him as a kid. What you see at the end of the movie with him in the cape in the backyard. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing that before The Dark Knight Rises. Yes. It was them saying, we're ending one hero, but we're going to be starting a new series next year. So it was it was a smart business decision for them to, to do that so early. Because Superman, sorry purists, he will never be as popular as Batman anymore. I, I don't think that switch is ever going to flip into Kal-El's direction ever again. I like the teaser trailer a lot. And I'll be honest, of the three of us, I was the most excited for this. I'm probably the... I'm not part of Snyder's cult. I think I made that abundantly clear when we reviewed BBS Part 1 and his Justice League. I think there are some things in his filmmaking that I have criticized vehemently, but I'm also not someone who will trash everything he's done, because he had done, what, four movies before this? You know, this wasn't his first big gig. And I'll say of the four, I like two of them. I'm not going to say what, because we'll probably talk about them some point down the line. The thing that scared me, and, and why I could not 100% get on board with this completely was that they were making it seem like Christopher Nolan was co-directing this movie with how mm-hmm. they just poured out his name, when in actuality, he was seldom involved in this production. He's a, you know, he's he's got a story credit, but I think that's because they, they, they came to him and said, hey, can we take your style and try to apply it to Superman, and that was what concerned me. I'm like, I don't feel Christopher Nolan's sensibilities match Superman as a character. And to his credit, he did come out in the press when this movie was being released, and he said, look, what I did was I hired Zack Snyder. After that, this was his film. He has said that he stepped away. And, you know, who knows how how involved Goyer was. He was doing a lot of interviews around the time this was coming out as well. I find it really funny that a lot like Burton, right after he's done with Batman, he goes and he gets associated with the Superman film. <laughs> one of those two actually was released. And we'll talk about how that one went. But it's just, it's just it's kind of funny to me. And after Dark Knight Rises, I think it was pretty apparent that... Christopher Nolan was not going to do another comic book film. And in the lead up to that, he had said that. Yet, the trailer for this was right before Dark Knight Rises. And again, it it was like, okay, you're going to go from this to this. But in reality, he didn't really do that. And in the lead up to this, like we ha- after Superman Returns came out and was considered a flop, although, again, it made $400 million, there was Mark Millar and Matthew Vaughn. They had an idea for an eight-hour Superman trilogy that would detail his entire life that they passed on. And I remember the directors that were being narrowed down. I remember articles showing all these directors and who they were going to choose. And among them, it was Darren Aronofsky, Matt Reeves, Ben Affleck, Tony Scott, and Duncan Jones. And Matthew Vaughn, I'd already mentioned. And then it came out that Zack Snyder had gotten the gig. And I remember I was just thinking, well, that's weird. As you mentioned, Matt, he did four films. And then right after it was, that was talked about, he had a movie coming out called Sucker Punch. I went to the theater, I saw that movie, and I thought for sure that we'd be hearing he lost a job a lot like what happened to Colin Trevorrow (laughs) a few years later, because that movie is one of the most horrible movies I have ever seen in my life. That is a terrible, terrible film. And here he is directing a movie starring a character that got me into comics and pretty much got me into films, as I've mentioned a hundred times while doing this retrospective. But did the hiring of Zack Snyder deter you at all, Adam? No. I was okay with it. I didn't 
you know, know his filmography huge at that point. I'm trying to think of what he had done beforehand because I could tell you. Was it so? I was going to say, th- yeah, 300 definitely came out before. Yeah, right. So, yeah, Dawn, yeah. Dawn so, of the Dead was his first movie, which I've still yeah. never seen. The funniest thing about that, Zack Snyder directed, James Gunn wrote it. James Gunn wrote, yeah. Which yeah. <laughs> is the funniest irony. 300 was next, then he did Watchmen, and then he did Sucker. Then he did Guardians of Cahool, which is that, that, yes, that owl that movie. animated owl Yeah, the owl movie. movie. Yeah. Yeah. And then he did Sucker Punch, which is one of the worst movies I have ever seen. It's so bad. Gearing up for this, I thought about sitting down and watching it just to see, is it really as bad as I remember? Because I only watched it the one time. You know, I keep getting I Sucker Punch it. mixed like, up with Kick-Ass. I, w- I was thinking King Gas. Oh, jeez. Oh, wow. So, yeah. Well, so, we'll get to that one eventually. So, so I've definitely seen 300, and you know what I'll do with it. I thought that was a massive cinematic achievement. Just in case we discuss it later, I'll leave the rest. But I thought cinematically that thing is amazing. Watchmen, we're definitely going to discuss. So, as I said, I'll save my thoughts. So, yeah. So, only knowing those two movies from him, his name did not sell or deter me on the film. Matt, would you like to have seen a Tony Scott Superman film? No, I never felt Scott belonged in super large productions. You know, I think his best work was always that that middle point of his career where he did smaller movies that still had action in them, like Man on Fire or Last Boy Scout. The one name that I, I, I think would have interested me more is, not, not that I think he would have 100% done it, but they were talking to Guillermo del Toro because yes. of the Blade 2 connection with Goyer, and he was working on... Mountain yeah, Madness which one, never it? saw the light of day. Never got made. Huh? <sighs> Aronofsky would have been the one where if he got the job, I would have said, fuck this. He was busy jerking off Wolverine and not making that movie at the time. <laughs> and remember, he danced around... He was going to Batman, Batman before. Yeah. yeah. No one got it. So Yeah, he's going to do every movie before he quits. Yes. Snyder didn't deter me, but... It wasn't one of those things like when when Sam Raimi got Spider-Man, I understood why people were so enthusiastic about that. Snyder, not so much. The one thing that did affect me was the cast they assembled for this movie. I liked that they went the Christopher Nolan Batman trilogy route of filling out this cast with a great assortment of actors to play these iconic parts, but unlike Batman Begins, they cast an actor in your lead that most people did not even know whatsoever. He was known before this, but he was known within circles of being one of the unluckiest actors <laughs> working in Hollywood. Because he, we've talked about it. We've talked about everything he was up for. Like yep. He was up for Bond. Yep. He was up for Superman before. Yep. He had a lot of roles that he, was, he, was, he auditioned for and just never got. And I think what Snyder saw was the fact that once he got in the suit, nobody snickered. Nobody looked and said, ooh, that's not going to work. Like, everybody was, like, respected Cavill once they saw him in the suit. So I think that is what sold him on the fact that, yeah, this dude could do it. Uh, um, you know, that, that, that kind of speaks, though, to my opinion on Zack Snyder, is that he's, he's yeah. so in love with mm-hmm. the aesthetic, how things look. That is first and exactly. foremost on his mind with every production. And you can see that applying with his casting of Cavill. Yeah, you could not cast a guy who, outside of casting someone like Dwayne Johnson, which was rumored, I remember that. It was. Uh, mm-hmm. Who's just built like a brick shit house. You you know, you cast a guy who certainly mirrors how Superman's been drawn in modern, certainly modern comics, and 
look, I, I knew who he was because of Hellraiser and Hellworld. That's yeah, that's how I do. I was like, really, that guy to play Superman. There was another movie he did, like in the year before this, for the in the cold of the night or some stupid title. And I remember, like, the lead up to it was this is starring the guy who's going to be Superman. I remember going to see that movie because of the fact that this was going to be Superman, and it was not very good. Because oh, that was like, <laughs> I think it was with Bruce yeah, Willis. Yeah, Levers in it. Um, yeah, and yeah. he he had a bit role in Stardust. He was in Immortal. He was the main oh, lead yeah. of Immortals. I don't know if you you ever yeah. saw that. So. It's not like he was in movies that were predominantly successful. He didn't have a Patrick Bateman like Christian Bale did, where people, you know, instantaneously could associate the actor with, you know, the character. But I thought that was. I'm glad they picked someone out of relative obscurity because I tend to like that more when you're casting superheroes. Not that you look at the big ones, like, not that Robert Downey Jr. was obscure, but. It's not like you cast, I don't know, who was hot at that time, like Will Smith or Brad Pitt, you know, superstar names. You're casting people that you have confidence in to bring these people to life, not for box office revenue. Well, we'll get to Iron Man eventually, but I I think the reason why people didn't want to hire him was just because of the insurance. The one thing that also gave me concern was I'm so sick of using the same fucking villains over and over. Yes. I, 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 I was not excited about General Zod because... Terrence Stamp is so synonymous with that character. And quite frankly, up until this movie, there's no other version that comes close to matching that. I thought, because it's the first Superman movie, I wanted this to be more like Batman Begins, where they pick, you know, like Escalation, like the trilogy talks about, where you build up to the bigger villains. And Superman's got ones that can fill that mold for his first outing. You know, I think of characters like Metallo or Parasite, you know, because that you can do with the alien stuff. But I was like, really? We're going back to the one other Superman villain besides Lex Luthor that they've done on screen before. The common DC problem. They think each superhero's only got two villains and they're going to recycle them worse than a state's mm. freaking aluminum program. Especially if you're David Goyer, who knows a lot about the DC pantheon. <laughs> or so David Goyer. Or so he claims to know. Because I remember... You know, ask- Ask him his thoughts on She-Hulk. Yeah, and I gotta say, that also scared me. He's the sole screenwriter cracking it up. Mm. Yep. My hope was that Nolan's gonna act like he did on the Batman films, where he was the filter. The comparison I make, Matt, is Vince Russo and Vince no, McMahon. Exactly. Like, I <laughs> call David Goyer the amoeba of writers, where he is only as good as the person he is working with. Yeah, to go with the wrestling analogy, yeah. I'll call him the nugget. For those that remember that, oh, <laughs> he's that little nugget floating in the bottom of the toilet when you're done flushing. <laughs> That's my opinion on Goyer. Matt, you didn't like Zod possessing Lex in Smallville? God, I never mean, mind. I, I, I have to have a show, but someone told me that, and I'm like, that sounds so dumb. I kind of want to watch it. It was really and they bad. Cast some like military brat to play yeah. Zod. I'm like, what the fuck is <laughs> yeah. this? Start of season six. Yep. If Go you on. want a good Zod, watch Superman and Lois. That's what I've heard. Or you could watch Krypton. Yeah, I'll agree with that. Krypton is surprisingly better than it ever deserved to be. I watched the first two episodes and tapped out of it, so it, you're saying it gets better. I, I do. I actually really, for something that was not supposed to be about Superman, but is whatever grand great-grandfather or something, I was impressed with what they did with Krypton. <laughs> All right, Brando. <laughs> Unless anyone has anything else to add, what do you say we dive into this very unnecessarily complicated plot that we have here. (laughs) So we're starting off with a ton of logos, including that of Nolan's production company, and we're also hearing a few bars of the score being done by Hans Zimmer. 
Uh, let's talk about that right away. Uh, with the exception of Steel and maybe Supergirl, though I was higher on the latter than you two, we have had some pretty triumphant scores in this series, and Zimmer had a tough task with this one. Could he come in and make this music associated with this character, music that in the past has been praised, including by us, as one of the most triumphant scores in movie history, his own? While at the same time he has to paint a picture of the character that Snyder was going for. I'll go ahead and say nothing he does here is that memorable or triumphant. I have been on record as saying I love what he did with the Batman scores. I do not love what he does with Superman. What about you guys? I love Hans Zimmer. I think he was... You know what? This is Nolan's other attachment to this film. If anything, has got to be on Zimmer. I love his scores for things like Interstellar, um, Inception, all the way back to Gladiator. I think he is a phenomenal composer. If I ever get a chance to see him when he does his live concerts, I would love to do so. I don't think he's the right choice for this. I really don't. I like some of what he does. I could point out two or three pieces in this movie that I think are beautiful, but I don't think Hans Zimmer is the right sensibility for you. For the cornerstone of super, for your bright, shining superhero, Hans Zimmer is not what I think of. I agree with both of your points, but I think some of the compositions in this movie are really, really good. Um, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't associate it though with the the aspirational side that I think a Superman score should infuse in your eardrums. But I do like that. It feels his score feels much more aligned with a science fiction movie, which is really what this is. This is mm-hmm, a first yeah. contact alien invasion movie more than it is a superhero movie, and I think more films in this genre need to fall in line with a specific subgenre versus just being a guy in a cape beating the shit out of people. Yeah, this is you're exactly right. This is more an invasion movie with these characters than these characters being involved in an invasion movie. I completely agree with that. And we're starting off about as pretentious as you can as we're witnessing the birth of our title character through a blurry lens, painting a picture that this will once again be a Christ figure, who one who will save us. We're going to see this fucking imagery throughout this entire movie. I think I lost my count at about nine. Um, you would have how do we feel? You would have run out of space on the Ten Commandments. I'm telling you. How do you guys feel about this opening? I thought I was watching a Terrence Malick movie. Yeah. With, with all the with all the close ups and all the handheld, mm. but I will say this is a I think this is you know I'm not someone who typically likes a reliance on shaky cam and close ups, but outside of if if you know what I'm alluding to, you know, outside of that part of this movie, I think a lot of the mm-hmm. handheld stuff works really well. Snyder does some really great stuff with perspective, the way he'll angle certain shots to make it look like he's above the characters. I know that's kind of like a you know a God Jesus type of allegorical style choice, but here's my problem: Did we need to see the Superman origin again? Because when it came for Batman Begins, it was important to do it in in that movie because no one had explored that cinematically. Superman's origin is considerably more straightforward than Batman's, and I think it's more universally known. So I believe you could have started this movie with him already, I don't want to say fully formed, but I think you could have bypassed a lot of the Krypton stuff, because everybody knows it. Well, it's being treated as flashbacks, and I think you had to, because you didn't want Henry Cavill walking on screen and thinking he came from the Christopher Reeve films. You had to kind of tell this, and I kind of like the way they do this. You know, I'm going to talk later about how I really like how they do some of the flashbacks later on, but I 
do think you had to go this route because some people are coming in not having seen those films. I remember the second time I went to see this film because after I fell asleep the first time, I wanted to go again and I ended up taking my brother and I think my girlfriend at the time when we went and I wanted to make sure and there were girls in that screening who had never seen a Christopher Reeve film. I knew because they, I heard them say it. And so I think you kind of had to go this route. People who haven't read the comics are not going to be familiar or seen the movies. Adam, do you agree with that? I don't want to, but yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, on the surface, it's been 35 years since Superman the movie when this comes out. 35 years, you know, to put it in perspective. I think movie fans know Superman's origins. I think comic fans know Superman origins. But to Matt's point also, it's tough because, okay, we discuss and we are going to discuss a lot of comic characters, a lot of comic movies. The trinity of all comic book characters are Batman, Superman, or Wonder Woman. Not just DC. Those are the three household names if you were to ask somebody to name comic characters. Now you'll get Iron Man, Captain America. But those three. So people have at least some knowledge. So, yeah, I do think there was a different way to show it. But I think they are determined for this to not be Superman Returns. And I think they are really trying to make that clear. And I also think it's kind of important to do so. I think if you are going to make a Superman origin story, you have to say, we cannot look at all of what was done before. We've got to do this on its own merit. Let's come up with something. And I do think that's what they're trying to do here. The Jesus allegory always... I get tired of it really quick, especially because Superman is Moses, not Jesus. So Zack Snyder, learn your <laughs> biblical history. He gets he literally gets put in a basket and freaking sent off the river. But yeah, I do think it's important to show it. I don't know if I need 30 minutes of it to open this film, however. We're also getting a good look at Krypton, or as it's known by his original name, Pandora. <laughs> um, this... You know, I, I know what he's going for here, but did we really need, like, this, this cartoon planet? And there's a lot of Yeager-esque imagery going on here. These fucking spaceships look like dicks. I'm sorry. They just there's do. There's nothing wrong with that. Every time they... I'm telling you, right? I mean, what are we going for here? Like, this is... I know, as Matt, Adam just outlined, and you did it beautifully, we're trying to divorce ourselves as much as possible from that previous world, but did we really need this type of imagery? So, I appreciate that this feels significantly more otherworldly than what you get in almost every other version. You know, the Donner films, it looks like they hung up a bunch of bed sheets in Antarctica in certain shots. Here, I like that it feels very alien. My problem is, I swear Zack Snyder does not know what a color palette is. Everything, and I, this is me, the colorblind person, calling this out, which goes to show you how much it bothers me. Everything is metallic, chrome, grayed out, washed out, and a lot of the architecture and some, even some of the, the cinematography reminds me of the Matrix movies. Hell, I think there's elements of all three Matrix movies throughout this film. I, it, it, I would have liked to have seen something a little bit more vibrant. And those the dragon things they fly remind me of the things that they stick their ponytail mm. dicks in uh, Andorra. That's where <laughs> I see your Avatar connection. Yeah, it's tough because I remember first seeing this and being kind of thrown aback by it. And there's times that I'll watch this and I'm like, man, I'm glad they at least tried to show us an alien planet. And at the same time, I don't love it. But I appreciate that they're like, let's show an alien planet. You know, I do think there's something important about that, but I don't think it's great. 
I don't think it's bad necessarily, but I don't think it's great. You know, it's it's like okay, we're we're seeing Krypton look like otherworldly, and I think it's important to do that. And they're doing something because there's always the Marvel DC argument. One of my problems with the first Thor movie, which came out around this time, was that it doesn't feel like another world, even though Asgard is. You know, they're technically aliens. Yeah. But everything is still really humanoid right down to the, the production design. Here, it actually feels of an alien, not just because there's some H.R. Giger aesthetics. I thought they did that well. This world makes me think that they could make a connection from this to Oa and the Lantern Corps and other things out in space, where I don't feel like I've ever gotten at another superhero films up to this point. We're then seeing Jor-El, played by Russell Crowe, giving his feelings on why he feels Krypton is in danger, saying that Krypton's core is collapsing, and suggesting that if he were to have control, he would ensure the survival of the human race. Let's talk about Russell Crowe here. I, I feel he is a suitable Jor-El for this movie. He kind of looks like our main star. In fact, our main star played his son in a movie called Proof of Life as an extra years ago, years before this movie had come out. And his character's presence definitely looms throughout this entire movie. To do that, he needs someone with the gravitas to pull it off. And I feel Crowe certainly does. I think he's okay here. Yeah, Russell Crowe's an actor who, when he's on his game, he's fantastic. But he's sleptwalked through a lot of movies, and uh, it's a good thing there were no telephones on Krypton, because this would have been a very different movie in that, mm. in that council <laughs> meeting. But I think he, he brings the gravitas to Jarrell that this, this needs, and I do appreciate that he's not just a, like a hologram, that he's, he's not Zordon from Power Rangers, which is what I thought he would be. And part of this is just because Russell Crowe is a big name. I'm sure he said, hey, can I be more in this movie than just the prologue? <laughs> um, but, but I think he's good, you know, and, and this is one of the, one of the more inspired castings because I think there, there is a period where if you look at like around Gladiator, could buy him actually playing Superman. I think he's decent. I just don't entirely love what they do with Jarrell. I don't need a lot of Jarrell in it. I, I sure don't need a, a fighty, kicky Jarrell. And I do just kind of wish that, that I, didn't realize I was looking at Russell Crowe. Because I understand he's Jarrell. I know it's the son of Superman, or the father of Superman, but I, when I look at him, I, I see Maximus. You know, I, I see Gladiator. I see, I see Robin Hood. There, there's just not enough there that pulls me out of realizing I'm watching Russell Crowe. But I don't think he's bad. These proceedings are interrupted by that scoundrel known as Zod, played here by Michael Shannon. Now, the compliments I just put on Crow are certainly not going to be thrown Shannon's way. I think Shannon is certainly doing what he's asked to do, but that direction seems to consist of Snyder saying, I want you to yell this line a lot. In a way, I'm glad he didn't just mimic the performance of his predecessor, Terrence Stamp, who had such a quiet presence and quiet power. Until he got mad, then he yelled. Here, Shannon just seems mad all the fucking time, and he has been out in the press since this movie's come out, saying how stupid he really does this movie. Although, I'm sure if you were to ask him, he would give you the Michael Caine line of, you should see the house that it built. I remember when he was cast, I felt inspired, because I, he was in a movie a couple years before this called Take Shelter, which is still one of my favorite movies from that era. And he is tremendous in that movie, but he just does not pull this role off. And I, and I really, speaking of Gladiator, I can't stand that haircut either. Michael Shannon's one of the castings I really, really like in this film. Uh, I I think he's wow. fantastic. I think he if you, if you were going to bring back Zod, you need to do it at least a little bit different. And I'm glad that he brings a different type of intensity to it. He's much better here than he was in his previous superhero movie, Jonah Hex. <laughs> <laughs> yes, oh, he was in Jonah Hex. But I 
like it, it's amazing because yeah, Michael Shannon will talk down to every movie that actually gets him attention and gets him a big paycheck so that he can go do award winners. But for somebody who you know, ninety percent of the movie going public would have had no idea who this guy is. I think it's a damn good casting job on his point. All right, Matt, be the tiebreaker with what he's asked to do, which I think is very to Garrett's point, one note. He does it well. But my biggest problem with Zod is in the writing, which I think we could say about a lot of this movie is my problems are with the scripting and how he presents himself once he gets reintegrated into the story. So I'll put a pin in that. There was someone who was offered the role that I really wish took it because I think he would have brought the... Uh, he would have been more not just angry, but I think he would have been a good persuader of why he felt so justified in what he was doing and could potentially have Kal-El wrestle with that decision later on, and that's Viggo Mortensen. I think he would have been perfect. And apparently they offered it to Dana Day-Lewis. i got to give them credit for trying. (laughs) Asking Dana Day-Lewis to be in a Superman movie, that's like asking John Williams to score a trauma movie. But I think Shannon's fine, but Zod's one of the things that I'm most disappointed by because I, I see that I see the outline for this character being great, but so much of the details needed to be expanded upon and more varied. He he feels like those early Marvel movie villains, where it's like, yeah, he's got a motivation, yeah, but I kind of need more of him. Here he's telling Jor El all these debates have led Krypton to ruin, and says the last thing he wants is for them to be enemies. But a battle does break out. How are you guys feeling about this, the way this room is is paved out here? We, we're going to see later that instead of having crystals that bring out the people of this world, they're instead containing these things that I equate to those mirrors we see in Disney's Haunted Mansion, you know, where they just kind of disintegrate into gray sand-looking stuff. The image just kind of absolves into gray particles that turn into something that doesn't look like a face, but is. This is all really weird, but it's definitely different. It reminds me of those, you know, little toys you used to get when you were a kid where you would, like, push it against your face when it was all those little pins. Yes. <laughs> you would yeah. stick your tongue out. I think it's a cool aesthetic. Yeah, that's a little different. They do some neat stuff with it. It was a different type of thing to see. Visually, I think it does a kind of cool job that feels otherworldly that way. And with the scientific feel of Krypton, I think it has a good place. I'm glad this didn't do the stupid sci-fi thing of where it's an advanced alien race, but they still have keyboards in English. (laughs) So glad they they worked around that. I I like this. It's it's cool. But, man, this, this first 20 minutes, everything that's told here could have been done in 10. I was just about ready to... I I had a note here that... Did you guys feel that this Krypton stuff could have been a little tighter? It it does feel a little long. This could have been a really cool five to seven minute opening montage over over Mm. credits with some great music. You could have done a, a... It would have streamlined everything. You would have got the point across... You wouldn't have made it so obvious that Zod is going to be here later as opposed to the first film where he fucks off and doesn't show up till the sequel and could have ended that opening with the spaceship crashing. So, yeah, you could have done it in a much, much different way because this is just, it's too much. You know, it is too much. And you know who the saving grace is for me in all of this is Laura because this woman who plays Laura Zorro, I think is fantastic. Yeah, because she played... uh... She played uh, Vanessa. Vanessa. Yeah, she plays Kingpin's wife in Daredevil, but she's great. She's more interesting than Jor-El, and Feora is more interesting than General Zod. Yep. <laughs> like it, it, it's kind of unfortunate that those two characters are more interesting, and they're the ones shoved in the background. But yeah, th- I think they should have done what they what he would do with BBS. As much as I resisted seeing the Batman origin again. 
he shot it in a way where he got it out of the way in three, five minutes. He could have done the same thing here with, with the Krypton stuff. Jor-El jumps on one of Pandora's creatures and flies away and dives for the Codex. He's amongst a ton of embryos underwater until he finally does find the Codex. I thought this was kind of cool. Again, Matt, this goes to your point. This is really Matrixy. Oh yeah, like this is like the, the humans and the batteries. That that council room looks like the um, where all the resistance leaders meet. Yeah. Uh, slash the Jedi Council from Coruscant. Uh, and, and, if, and everyone, but everyone's dressed like they're in the Hunger Games, where they're, <laughs> they're all decked out in you know a lot of jewelry. But yeah, Jarrell and Zod have the the, the body suits. Like I'm sorry, Russell Crowe. I know you... he's in decent shape here. You know he doesn't look like Maximus, but he also doesn't look like how he looks now. It's still not the most flattering thing, especially when he has to get wet. Well, when he was cast, he had just done a movie that I actually just showed my fiance a couple of weeks ago called The Next Three Days. And he had purposely gained weight for that role. And I was kind of concerned because I was like, are we going to see like a chubby Jor-El up here? But no, he got himself in some pretty decent shape. But you're right. He's not exactly Maximus. No, right. I mean, he could have he could have honored Marlon Brando and just... Because <laughs> when Russell Crowe nowadays says, oh, I gained weight for this role, I'm like, no, you said, hey, give me another role because I'm starving. Um, <laughs> the other week, Guillermo del Toro said he's glad he's lived long enough to finally look like Russell Crowe. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> like that meme of uh, on your on your dating profile, say you look like Christian Bale, but don't say which movie. <laughs> Christian Bale or Russell Crowe? Uh, the Christian. Bale, I mean, both of them. I mean, Russell oh, Crowe. You could be the machinist, the 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 machine, or you could be freaking Dick. Yeah, you could be Maximus, or you could be. Uh, Jack Healy from The Nice Guys, where he wears Hawaiian shirts to hide his gut. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Jorel's told to surrender the Codex, but he once again escapes. He reassembles it and sends his newborn child to Earth, saying he will be a god to them. The ship then takes away as Jorel armors up. Meanwhile, Zod is informed of the launch and tells Jorel to surrender the Codex. Jorel tells Zod that his son is Krypton's first natural birth in centuries, and that he is free to forge his own destiny. Again. Very Christ-like. <laughs> but that's not like. I like the whole idea because it ties really well yeah. into Superman's conflict of, you mm-hmm. know, I am unnatural on both Earth because of my abilities and on Krypton because of my being what we would say on Earth is like a, an unnatural birth. You know, it's, it's like the midi-chlorians. You know, there was no father. Uh, it's like the opposite of that. Uh, I think that's a great setup. But my question is, they talk about when they're, sending him to Earth that, like, you know, he'll be a god to them. But I don't get the sense that they're doing this because they want him to be the symbol that Superman has to become. It feels more like out of just survival, and this is the only planet within distance that he can survive on. So when he's presenting that dilemma to him later on, I'm very confused. Yeah, yeah that's one of the things that, that film-wise, and if a TV show-wise isn't clear, you know, do they do this regretfully knowing what he's going to become that, you know, you could be the best of them, but it's, you know, I'm sorry, I had to do this to you, son. Because uh, Jarrell clearly at least knows what Earth's Yellow Sun is going to do. But there there should be some regret there, and they never play that up as much as I... It, it, it would just give such another conflict to it. You know, to Matt's point, you have a man, a super man, who literally is a man without a home in two different worlds. Another fight breaks out, and despite Zod's pleas that the Codex is Krypton's future, Lara does not abort the launch, and Zod kills Jor-El. Lara tells Zod that their son is beyond his reach, and the ship then gets away, 
And then Zod gets sentenced to 300 cycles of reconditioning, as they put it. Zod declares that he will find the son of Jor-El as they are encompassed in what looks like ice and taken away in the penises that I mentioned earlier. That is one big Krypton dildo. Yeah, I'm telling you. Even, even the, when they go into the Phantom Zone, the thing that opens up. I mean, she's the... Yes. I'm, oh, man. Yeah. Zack Snyder... Deborah Snyder should be blushing the entire time she's producing and realizing what she's putting on screen. Yeah. And I, I thought... You know what? Honestly, I got to be honest. I, got, I thought I'd be the only one on this podcast who'd see that. I thought I'd be the only one who would notice that that's exactly what these are. But you guys are saying you guys notice oh, it HR, as well. H.R. Giger came back to life and said, oh, my God, that's a dick. Krypton then blows up as Lara tells her son in the sky to make a world that is better than theirs. We see the ship crash land as we cut to a fishing boat, which contains our hero looking very manly. One thing Snyder is trying hard to do here is take away all the ideas of this being a Donner-type romanticizing of the character. This Henry Cavill is a manly man, and I guess this is a decent way to go. Definitely different, and unlike Singer, Snyder is definitely making this character his own. Now, we'll talk about the performance here in a bit, but what do you guys feel about that, that this is definitely Snyder's version of this character? Well, he's definitely going from a romanticized in the all-American type of way that Christopher Reeve embodied both the 70s and, like, classic Hollywood, because that's what Superman was partially alluding to. Here, this is the, uh, this is someone that would be lusted after the perfect specimen in the same way that, like, in Total Recall, Arnold comes up with, like, his view of the perfect woman. Uh, mm-hmm. That's kind of what, how this Superman is built with the, the beard, and I appreciate that they didn't make Cavill shave his chest. Uh, they embraced, you know, the masculinity of Superman. I have no problem with this, really, as far as how he looks or what he's doing being introduced. But the, the thing about the non-shaved chest, it's kind of distracting once he gets in the suit, though, because you can see it. Like, you can see the chest here over the suit. It's really distracting. Adam, how do you feel about the way he's introduced here? The introduction, I don't... Oh, man, you want to talk about pulling me to the side and I'm tilting my head sideways like a confused dog. I'm like, oh, what the... Huh? He looks like a super being. You know, I will absolutely give it that. You know what came out two years before this? Captain America, the first Avenger. And if you're going to make Chris Evans look so big that even Haley Atwell's grabbing his titties, you've got to make Superman look superhuman. And and they sure do. It's I do think that... I think Christopher Reeve's Superman would not <laughs> would not fly as Superman today. So I do think it's, it was imperative to put a superhero on screen who looks superhuman. And Henry Cavill, fucking, he does in this film. He really does. And to his credit, he requested that he didn't want anybody to do any CGI imagery or anything of this. Like, he wanted this to be him and him only because he worked really, really hard, and it definitely shows. No touch-ups, no, uh, no medicinal enhancements. Um, no mustache no, removal. No <laughs> You get a lot of actors who get uh, what do they call them? Um, chicken tits, where they will li- they will literally put chicken breasts inside their pecs. You know, I mean, th- mm-hmm. this is Cavill really working his ass off to look this way. Yeah, it's it's completely natural. And, and remember, we also live in a world where how Hugh Jackman looks in the first X Men movie versus <laughs> yeah. around this time. Like, could you imagine if Hugh Jackman in X Men One was going to play Superman? People would be like, oh, he looks like shit. Like, this scrawny guy is going to... You know, because Cavill's a big guy normally, um, so he has the frame to put on this. I I think, you know, physically, you can tell it's 
There's not a whole lot of artificial in the fact that Cavill refused CGI assistance. I really wish he stuck with that more when we got the Justice League. <laughs> Speaking of a float, we're seeing more Christ-like imagery as Clark is spread-armed in the water, and we're flashing back to him as a child. And I have to say, the stuff with him as a kid might be my favorite portion of this movie. Like when he discovers he has x-ray vision, before we had lights that represented bones, and we just focus on Reeve's face and wait for him to tell us what he saw. And, you know, I, I saw some representation of it when I saw Smallville, too. You know, there was, they did a little bit thing that was different with that. But here, he's seeing the actual insides of humans, from bones to musculature, and it's scaring him to death. And this kid is remarkable at playing up that fear. And, you know, I, I put it into context, boys. I was thinking, I was like, you know what? This kid did not go in a ship where he was told by his father everything to expect once he lands in the three years' time that he was in that ship, like we saw previously. This is all very, very new to him. And, you know, it might be the fact that I, I love Smallville in the years leading up to this as well. And we saw him discover his powers a lot on that show. But this stuff hit me way more than I was expecting. And I wanted more of it. What about you guys? Yeah, I would have liked to have spent, you know, because the nonlinear stuff, this is straight out of the Batman Begins playbook. It, it, like, a lot of this movie feels like, okay, how can we make Batman Begins but with Superman? That's not inherently bad, because I still think Batman Begins is probably the best origin film for a superhero because the first Superman movie, because it spans so much time, I'm talking about the Donner film, uh, yeah. his childhood is fragmented. So I think it would have been a perfect opportunity for this movie to be him. It's like he has Kryptonian puberty and then his actual, like, you know, human puberty, where you spend a lot of time with him as an actual child, especially because you're cutting to a Clark Kent who's, what, 30? 33. 33 we're told at least three times. Uh, right, yeah, because... Yeah. And that's Moses. Yeah. I mean, that's not Jesus. That, isn't that Moses? Or is it the other way? That's uh, Jesus. Jesus. I think that's Jesus mm -hmm. coming back into Galilee. Yeah. But but I would have liked to have seen more of him because this is where, when his mom comes in, it's one of the best scenes in the movie. So I, I think this stuff works really well, especially because, you know, Ma Kent's a part of the Donner films, but she's not, I wouldn't call her instrumental. This would have been a perfect way to spend more time with them. I agree. I adore what they do here when they do the flashback. I didn't realize, you know, we were going to go nonlinear. I probably should have. And I think the first time that I watched it, I was, eh, I'm not the biggest fan of, of nonlinear storytelling, especially when it's done throughout the entire film. And it's done about, what, a little more than half of this film's done that way. But I think it's done really well. Like seeing young Clark, young Cal, very, very well done. And to your point, yeah, that scene of him at school, when he has his x-ray vision and he's in the closet and ha ah, and um, Ma <laughs> Kent comes up and, you know, tells him, you know, make the world smaller. It's just hear my voice. There's some beautifulness <sighs> to that. There really is. Yeah. God, I wish a different director directed this. <laughs> could have been so much better. Because it shows that Zack Snyder understands humanity. This is, it, this is why Nolan didn't direct it. There's emotion in this one. <laughs> well, there... Up to a point. Yes, it's it's yes. sprinkled in throughout. Like, like these scenes are like fairy dust. It's like, it's like they <laughs> trick you. But this is so, Diane Lane is a great choice for Ma Kent. So as he's running from the noise and hearing everything, he locks himself in a closet. 
He's about to burn the doorknob before his mom shows up, being played by Diane Lane. Now, Adam, did we just see Diane Lane in theaters in Judge Dredd? Like, what are we doing 20 years later seeing her in a Superman film playing Superman's mom? I'm a fan of Diane Lane, as I know you are, Adam. Once I go, got over the shock that this woman who I had crushes on 30 years ago was playing the same character a silver-haired lady had played previously, I came to the conclusion I think she sank into the role pretty well. Yeah, I, I think she does a fantastic job here. She's motherly, she's caring, but not so much that she would baby the son. You know, she's exactly what he needs. She's as strong of a presence in his upbringing than we're going to get from Pa here in a little bit, you know, once we discuss him. So I think Diane Lane as Martha is an inspired choice. I think it's a great job. And I think it shows being that she carries past this film into the other Justice League works. Yeah, we were at Aunt May syndrome where they're getting younger and younger with each movie. You mm-hmm. know, went from silver hair, now we're at gray hair. And even then, I think there might be some dye in there. Definitely. <laughs> no is, yeah. pun intended. Yeah, I think she's great. And it just makes me want more of her. I wanted more stuff like this. Because the problem, one of the most common critiques of Superman is that we can't relate to him. Scenes like this are how you get past that barrier. If you really understand him as a kid, how his worldview is shaped, what he's gone through... I think would help people identify with him more. Yeah, and to kind of go with the the point that you made, Adam, Diane Lane is only 14 years older than Amy Adams in this movie. So if if that tells you that, yeah, they did put some dye in her hair for this. We're then seeing our main actor emerge, as well as hearing The Long Walk by Chris Cornell. Now, I've already outlined that I feel Snyder does have sensibilities that work with this character, but his musical taste for some scenes, and this was really apparent in Sucker Punch before, just doesn't work, and this is a problem in a few of his other projects, a few of which we'll be covering. This yeah, It's on the nose, too, which you can yes. say a lot about Zack Snyder. He's not a subtle filmmaker. And this is the guy who put Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah on a gratuitous sex scene. Oh, my God, yeah. Oh, he has, I forgot that, about he's, that. Like, it's funny. He picks great music to start his movies, like Dawn of the Dead, where he used The Man Comes Around by Johnny Cash, and Watchmen used the Bob Dylan song. I yeah, those are good choices. He's got James Wan has this problem, too, where sometimes he doesn't pick the right songs for particular scenes. But, yeah, th- this was too much. And a lot of this is borrowing from... So I can plug comics. It's a bad run called Superman the Wanderer, where he's just kind of like meandering, going from place to place like a nomad. It's fucking so David this, Banner. Yeah, yeah, and this is this might well be out of the Bill Bixby show, to your point. Yep. I can't stand this music. I can't stand the song choice. This has been in the theater, and I'm up to this point. This is me, I think, audibly going, the fuck's sake is this? <laughs> yeah. And I grew up in the... You know, I mean, sorry, but, you know, Soundgarden, Cornell, I mean, this is my music, and it has no places. <laughs> it's just, mm. it feels so awkward and out of place. Let's talk about Henry Cavill in this role. The first chance we've really had to dive into what he's done as Superman, a.k.a. the Man of Steel. I thought he was definitely a different choice for this role. As I said, I think he's fine. Though there are twitches and things in which he plays this role I don't really agree with. But for the most part, this is Snyder's vision come to life. And amongst the Snyder universe, I think he's pretty good amongst the, you know, one of the better decisions he made when he was in charge of this universe. Does. I mean, considering that Cavill does not have a whole lot of dialogue in this movie, I think he does a great job of being... He's the opposite of Gal Gadot, where he knows how to emote without saying anything. <laughs> I would have liked him to have, a, have more conversations with people. But I think he does a he does a damn good job. It's a different take, which I admire, but not in the way where I don't feel like I don't have the this doesn't feel like Superman 
throughout this entire movie. This performance doesn't, in, or this interpretation does not invalidate it in my mind as a valid take on Superman for most of it. But as far as with what Cavill responsibly does, I think he's damn good. Funny thing is that Charlie Cox was also offered Superman, mm-hmm. but he played Daredevil instead. I think that was the right call because I don't think his physique would match Superman. And also, I don't think Henry Cavill's right for Daredevil. So I think it all worked out, and I'm disappointed that we're not going to see him, you know, ever play this role again. Yeah, I don't just like what he does. I like the time frame choices that they make here because these are the lost Jesus years, and we only get a little bit of it, but we've never really gotten that before. You know, in the other ones, we get Superman, we get him through high school, you know, and then Pa dies, funeral, he goes walking to the Arctic, and then he's Superman. We don't get that time in between Jesus walking out into the desert and coming back. So what happens between, you know, to the Kevin Smith joke, what, you know, what happened to Jesus between 18 and 30? And we get some of that here with Superman, and I think that's nice to see that he's, I think the, you know, the Bill Bixby show, I do think that's a, I think Snyder or Nolan went, you know, that's what Superman would do. He would be out wandering the world helping people. And, you know, as Matt said, that Superman Wanderer is a big, big part of that. So I think it fits. I think it's a nice choice, and I like that we don't spend too, too much time on it, just enough to know that he's out there trying to help people without revealing what he can do and feeling like an outsider and an outcast the whole time. So Clark once again flashes back to when he was a kid as some ginger named Pete is calling him Dick Splash on a bus. (laughs) and the bus falls over a bridge, and Clark ends up saving it from sinking. And girl looks back and sees him pushing the bus up before we see him save Pete. This kid looks like, you know, on South Park, where Cartman turns into a ginger? <laughs> looks exactly like how he would look in, in real life. I could not have found a kid who looks more like a young Henry Cavill. Yeah, yeah. that's true. This kid's really good. Yeah, I, I kind of wish he was in the movie more, too. Me, too. We cut to Ma and Pa Kent talking to Pete and his mom as they say that they did see Clark pull the bus out of the water and save those kids that were on it, even saying that this isn't the first time they've seen Clark doing something like this. We then cut to Clark and his father on the outside of the house as his dad is telling him that it's more important to hide who he is than saving a bunch of people from drowning, as people are afraid of what they don't understand. Now before we talk about the context of this speech, let's talk a little bit about our Jonathan Kent here, played by Kevin Costner. I think Costner is a good choice for this role. Again, a real manly man. So you could believe that he has lived on and run this farm, and I like the warmness that being exuded by him where he's saying no, sometimes sacrifices have to be made to preserve who you are. Now, for three straight years, this was pretty much the end of every episode of Smallville until they broke the formula a bit in the fourth one. Uh, I really like the principle behind this speech, but we'll talk about how it's resolved here in a bit. Matt, how do you feel about our Pa Kent here? As someone who's not a big Kevin Costner fan, I still think this was a good choice because for being, at one time, a huge movie star, he still feels like an average guy, you know, like mm-hmm. which I think is what Pa Kent needs to be. So I, I think he's good here. And again, I... I I left myself wanting more, which I can't believe I'm saying about a Kevin Costner performance. And I think the reason why he says, fuck people, you know, let them die, is because none of them went to go see The Postman. (laughs) Or Wyatt Earp. (laughs) You gotta remember, there was a time, Kevin Costner was the biggest movie star in the world. There was nobody 
bigger. And I think Waterworld did a lot to derail that. I don't know if we'll ever cover that. I'll just go ahead and say I think that's very underrated. It's a very underrated film. But comic book films in general have a way of just pulling these people out. I mean, we're, we'll see it when we get to Marvel and Robert Redford. Just pulling these people who, you know, they've been working but not really doing anything that's really been noticed and putting them on full display here. And I think, you know, Snyder realized that Kevin Costner was a big name and he did exude a bunch of manliness you know, when he was the biggest movie star in the world. And I, and I think he does a good job. Oh, yeah, his, his Field um, of Dreams character is a good allegory. Or mm-hmm. for that, but the one knock I have on this is that unlike Diamond Begins, where you have Michael Caine in that movie, you have Gary Oldman, you have Liam Neeson, Morgan Freeman, I don't feel like these actors are as well utilized and incorporated as those were, and, and aren't used as effectively like I think Batman Begins used its ensemble. For posterity, I just want to put it on record that the best thing about Waterworld is the Universal Studios stunt show, still going strong twenty years <laughs> later. Uh, <laughs> You know what? Of the two Robin Hoods in this movie, they got the right one to be Pa Kent. <laughs> you know, he's a better Robin Hood as well. No. Talking about his stardom, Back to Dances with Wolves, I think, was when everything kind of changed for him. But it, it's amazing because it seems like he was plucked out of obscurity for this, where he wasn't. You know, he was a star, but hadn't had a hit in a long time. I think he's damn good casting. I love his aw shucks that he brings to it. I feel like he's a man who is conflicted, that he has this son that he can't completely connect with, that he's scared of, or scared for, that he wants to protect, doesn't know how to do so. Like, I get a father who just wants to protect his son and doesn't know if he could do so in in the world that he now lives in, and I think that's great. Pa Kent then takes Clark to his ship, and this is when he finds out that he's an alien. He gives him the key that was in the ship, and whatever it is made of is not on the periodic table, is what he tells him. It's unobtainium. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well played, sir. He then tells Clark that he was sent here for a reason, and when the time comes, he will find out what that reason is. I can't, I can't, I can't watch this. Oh, it's tough. And yeah. when he says, you are my son... I can't get through that scene without welling up. I just, I can't. Some yeah. of the best delivery Kevin Costner has done in his career for, like, one line. Mm-hmm. We cut to a bar where Clark works at as he sticks up for a waitress being harassed by some unruly dudes in the bar. And even after being provoked, Clark just walks away, though he does string up the guy's truck. <laughs> <laughs> I love that he destroyed that truck. We then cut to a helicopter landing in, Ar- in Antarctica, and who should emerge but Smallville alum herself, Amy Adams, here as Lois Lane. Now, as we discussed last week, she was up for this part in Superman Returns and lost it to somebody she shouldn't have. Other people considered were Olivia Wilde, Nally Portman, and Mina Kunis. If we're looking for people more like their previous counterparts, I think this is the one that's most like Margot Kidder we're going to get. She's feisty, she's attractive, but not donut grease hot, and a complete go-getter. I like Adams here. Adam? Adam likes Adams. I think she's <laughs> I think she's a very good choice. I think she's considerably better than what we discussed uh, last week, two weeks ago, whenever, last week. She's different than Margot Kidder, but I think she's more believable to be Superman's love interest, uh, at least for this Superman. You know, I mentioned before that Margot Kidder I believe Christopher Reeve fell for her, but that was because of Christopher Reeve's performance. I never believed there was a reason for it. I believe this Lois Lane would be someone that Superman would sit, would would go for, would fall in love with. I think she does a great job at, without being annoying, without most of the time, without sticking out and 
kind of overrunning and taking the movie away from Superman. I, I hate the thought that every Superman needs to have something dramatic for Lois Lane to do. No, no it doesn't. Lois Lane is a side character at best, but I think that what they do with Amy Adams is, is really well done. I think if they didn't give her anything to do, there would be outcries of, well, why was she here if she's not going to do anything? I think they had to do something with her, and I think what they give her isn't too bad. Now, when we get to the end of this movie, she turns into the damsel in distress, but I think what they give her to do, I think it's right up there with what they did with Margot Kidder in those previous films. I wouldn't go that far because I feel like this is another example of them having to put Lois Lane up on a pedestal of importance that I don't think the character requires every single time. Even this, she gets a big dramatic entrance with, you know, this expedition looking for the Kryptonian ship, ultimately. It's it's fine for now because she's a reporter, you know, investigative, but there comes a point where she becomes the only important human in Superman's world. You know, we talked about this on yeah. the BBS show last year, and we'll revisit it next week, but that starts here. And I have a huge issue with that, which I will, I'm sure we will all talk about as the movie proceeds. Great choice. You know, I love Amy Adams. But I also think this is a role anybody could have played, except for Kate Bosworth. But, but I think there's plenty of other people who, who could have come in and done this role justice. But I also don't think it was any of the women that you mentioned. Don't forget, Amy Adams was a couple years removed from being nominated for an Oscar for The Fighter. And that was for a character that was really ballsy and really just did not take shit from anybody. She can go there. I think she does kind of go there here, but you're absolutely right. With with what they do with her, man, and we discussed it last year. And like you said, we're going to rediscover it because I'm going to look at it more from their point of view than the Batman point of view that we discussed last time. They don't do much that I was hoping for. But for this introduction and for these first few scenes with her, I really do like her. So they go to where this source of the, uh, an anomaly is, and they say that the ice surrounding a mysterious object is over 20,000 years old. Oh, shit. She's Somebody still... call Kurt Russell. I was just thinking I the same say, thing. Didn't we review Alien vs. Predator already? <laughs> <laughs> and me and you reviewed the thing with Mick a, couple years ago, a few years ago. She builds her camera and goes outside where she spots someone going to the ship. Of course, being Lois Lane, she follows this him. This is so dumb. This is my problem, it's really my problem with Lois Lane in a lot of media, where the excuse for her doing dumb shit is because she's a reporter, an investigator. But this is the Arctic, and she's not protected, really. Uh, but mm. she's like, I'm going to follow this complete stranger who, why is this guy here? He's not part of the expedition. But no, I'm going to follow him because he's hot. And just walking around this military installation that supposedly or apparently has no security, no sentries, no nothing at night that she can just wander around willy-nilly. Clark walks deeper in the ship until he pushes the key to keep the drones from attacking. Lois doesn't have a key, though, and keeps getting attacked after she takes their picture. And this is how her and Kal-El meet. Quick question, Garrett, because I, I believe I've seen, is that the same key as there is on Smallville. No, from the, the little I know, like it, see, it, didn't it look just like that? Okay, Never it did. It looked like it, but it was different. Okay, I know it had a different purpose. To me, just it looked like that that shape and everything. The the key in Smallville was a disc, and then eventually it turned into something where, like in the fourth season, it turned into like this video game type thing where you had to go to this place to get this, and this place to get this, and this place to get this. Then you get the full key, mm. and that only unlocked the Fortress of Solitude. So it was, it was a whole fucking oh, so wraparound thing. With the rise of Skywalker. He then gives her a hell of a first date by cauterizing her wound. Who hasn't? 
You know? <laughs> so we've discussed the x-ray vision. How do we feel about the orange-eyed heat vision? This this really comes into play at the end of the film. I do like how this is, though, where like, we're seeing the heat before it emerges from their eyes. I, I thought that was an interesting way to go. I like it. Superman has gone that way. You know, it's, it's kind of like gone from leaping to flying. We've gone from having heat vision to having Cyclops-style laser blasts come out of his eyes. So at this point, I accept it. I think it's a cool visual, and yeah, I, I think it works. I like the way that it that it shows up. Can I get super nerdy for a sec? <laughs> yes. uh, so I appreciate that these are actual laser eyes because they generate heat. They're not Cyclops's blasts because Cyclops's blasts are concussive. Uh, they don't they don't generate heat, which is what a lot of people don't understand. <laughs> they are two separate things. Believe it or not, the Inlet School is like the Kano effect from Mortal Kombat. Looks good, but it's, is this the only time in the movie where he saves somebody? No, he <laughs> saves her later. I'm kidding. I'm, uh, <laughs> he saves somebody other than Lois Lane. He saves her later. <laughs> she gives Perry White the results of her findings, and he in turn tells her that the Pentagon is, of course, denying the existence of any ship. So let's talk about good old Morpheus here. There we go. Yes, in a matrix, now, I did put that together. Jesus. Now, be- before when I saw this, I hated his performance because I didn't feel he was anywhere near Perry White that I was familiar with, and he felt here by name only. But in watching this movie again, I kind of came to the conclusion that he represents the themes of this movie. What I mean is, he's giving back the facts that the Pentagon has reported to him and shooting Lois's theories down, not really letting her write her story here. But later, after seeing what Superman has done to help, he goes and tries to rescue a woman trapped in their fallen building. If this had happened in the beginning, I think he would have left before this woman was in trouble and not really been here. But Superman is not here to pull cats from trees. He's here to inspire people to be the best that they can be. And that's what White's doing by the end of this movie. And that's my conclusion to this character. That's my conclusion to this arc. Adam, do you agree with that? You know, I never thought it through that much. But yeah, I mean, it it does seem like, yeah, he's a little more, uh, wants to do better by people by the end of it. Not that he's a bad person at all by the beginning. But yeah, I could actually see that trajectory. And I don't see anything to disagree with that. Separate from that, I like Larry Fish here. I think he does a decent job without sticking out like a sore thumb too much. I mean, you know, it's, you know, Lawrence Fishburne, but I think he gives a decent performance without getting in his own way. It's a good little simple choice. He's fine, but so much of the Daily Planet stuff feels like we have to have this because it's part of the Superman mythos, not because it actually suits the story. Oh, wait till we get to the final shot of this movie. I have words. Well, I have words oh, no, you that, too. So, well, I'm sure <laughs> well, the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the planet's going to keep spinning when we get to it. So. I was going to say, yeah, we got to keep a few things in the, you know, here at the, at the planet, including changing names and making sure that we don't get other sidekicks that we usually get because we have to gender swap Superman's other buddy and put it into Lois's, I guess, second rate support. Yeah, she, she might as well be her, like, intern. There were complete outcries over the internet. Well, not, I shouldn't say outcries, but theories that this Jenny character was actually Jenny Olsen. It is. But later... It's, it's, her name is Jenny Olsen. Do we ever hear that? Yeah. Her name, and she's credited as Jenny I, I, Olsen. I never heard that. It makes and we, no sense when Zack Snyder then kills Jimmy Olsen yeah. in the next <laughs> yeah. movie. Yeah. Okay. I thought those were just theories. I didn't. I didn't actually hear the name, so I must. I must have missed it. No. It, it's. Uh, I think she's actually credited as Jenny Olsen. Yeah, she really. Because that's uh, what's her Jay Slate from a whole bunch of stuff. Got, yeah. Got Michael Kelly from House of Cards and a bunch of other stuff to play Steve Lombard, who's the uh, 
in most versions, he's the sports writer at the Daily Planet, but he's he's sort mm-hmm. of Clark Kent's Flash Thompson to make to make a Spider-Man reference. That's how I compare him. It's here because. It's kind of like a mandate. Well, you can't do a Superman movie without the Daily Planet. It's like uh, Spider-Man. We can't do a movie without Uncle Ben getting shot. Yeah, Uncle Ben. Please do a movie without me getting shot. At least for the first two. Lois goes to some hack online reporter to try and get the story printed. Meanwhile, Superman meets his father, who tells him almost all the things Brando told Reeve before, but in a smaller amount of screen time and human time. This is also when we're finally introduced to the suit and him flying for the first time. And let, let's talk about the suit. When a different you, look, hang on. keeping when, with the when blue. You, when you say goes Go to meet his father, make clear he goes to the Fortress of Solitude, not yes. not, not back to the farm. He he, he goes into yeah. Oh yeah, else. yeah. His real father. Now let's talk about the suit. A different look, keeping with the blue, but like everything else in this movie, it's darker. And this cape was all CGI, which is actually tremendously pulled off. I didn't even know that until I had read that later. And I do love this flying scene because it's the only time we see anyone have any fun in this fucking movie. This whole sequence here, I I really do like a lot. Again, I think it just goes with the fact that I connected with Superman because of the father-son stuff. Because it reminded me so much of me and my father growing up. And this is him becoming the man that he was always conditioned to be. And these are all themes that I struggle with on a daily basis if I'm going to up to the magnificent man that my father was and here he's actually doing that and i really do enjoy this portion of the film i really enjoy that we we start to get that Jorel explanation and as you said it's not nearly as long and when we cut to the outside of the fortress and then the door opens up just a splash page shot of him walking out in that suit the suit looks amazing except for the color i i, I'm, I am yeah. never going to excuse that they muted it down so damn much. I, I sucks because I love the look of it otherwise. And all the work that went into the texture and everything and the Kryptonian writing they mm-hmm. put into it. Just god damn mm-hmm. just blew it just brighten up that blue. To your point, the him flying, that first flight, the music, stupendous. This is one of those where I just I love the music. And that he leaps for the first few times. He doesn't just fly, he leaps. That that throwback to Superman who mm-hmm. didn't start by flying but leaped tall buildings. And that's what he does. He leaps a few times and then he flies. And that look of joy on Henry Cavill's face, the one time that we get to see it, and uh, I think we'll see it twice, but this is the first time. And Cavill's got a delightful smile. I mean, he, his fucking smile is like Santa Claus. But it's just, it is, to your point, it's joyful and it's a magical scene. And then it even ends with a laugh. You know, mm-hmm. this movie isn't very bright and funny, but man, this is a damn good scene. So I'll say something that's controversial, and I know a lot of people are upset about. Are you guys really going to bitch about the fact he's not wearing the underwear on the outside? Like, get the fuck over it already. <laughs> like, No, that's not no, what we're I, bitching at. We're bitching at the, the color. General oh. there, were a lot of people, oh, okay. there were a lot of people who were upset about that. It hashtag oh, bring wow. back the tights. Yep. Yeah, I do remember that now that you mentioned it. And the cape being all CGI, though, doesn't surprise me because Zod's armor is also entirely CGI. So there's a lot of that with the costuming. I think it looks good. I like that. He's not Superman right away. Learning how to fly is difficult, even for Superman. I like that, but I'm so tired of muting colors in costumes. Because they did this also with Wonder Woman. The red and the blue on her outfit is also really muted. I think it's more of a stylistic choice because of the way Zack Snyder shoots his movies, where it wouldn't be consistent with the rest of his color palette if it was overly bright. But that just reaffirms my point that I wish he used a more expansive color repertoire in shooting his movies. To go to your point, Adam, this is the only track to me that stands out. So good job on Zimmerman that part. 
Lois, meanwhile, is doing some investigative reporting and finds gingered Pete Ross working at the nearby IHOP. This leads her to Ma Kent, and we cut to the graveyard where Pa Kent is being kept and her talking to Clark. We then cut to a fight between him and his parents and a tornado. This is when the film lost me and never got me back. It is ridiculous how long Snyder just lingers on Costner as he holds his hand up. I get what he's trying to do here, but for a movie so hell-bent on telling us this story so magically and differently, this notorious scene should have been redone. And Snyder is really playing up the moment, too. He's, he is milking this for all it's worth. He's trying to get us to fucking care, but the ridiculousness behind it is just too much. And goddamn, I, I rebelled against the scene when it came out. I remember someone on this podcast would post memes about it every fucking day on my Facebook in the weeks after, and it still gets me to this day. I think this movie would work so much better if they had just done this scene differently. It sucks. In the lead-up to this, I don't, as much as I understand it, I don't need the you're not my dad scene in the car just because Henry Cavill looks a little too freaking old at that point. He looks like the 30-foot yeah. old at the end of the movie when they're having that fight. Mm. I love this tornado scene. I think <sighs> it's, I think it's important. I think the sacrifice... Uh, it, the the arguments that I've heard that Superman wouldn't do this, Superman wouldn't do... You're right. Superman wouldn't do this. You know who's not there? Superman. Clark Kent is there. He's learning who he is. This is even not even year one Superman at that point. And this is his father. This is part one. We're not going to see the heart attack again. For everybody who wants to yell and scream, I'm tired of seeing... This is not a shot at you, uh, Matt. I'm tired of seeing Ben shot. I'm tired of seeing Martha get shot. I'm tired of the fucking origin stories getting told over and over and over. To have it done differently, one, I'm happy with, very happy with. Two, it's an emotional moment that did hit me, that Pa Kent is willing to sacrifice himself to save the identity of his son, knowing that he needs to do that. And as much as that tears him up, and as much as that's going to tear up Clark as well. So this scene... It got me emotionally. Again, I love the concept of it. I fucking hate how it's executed. Like, maybe have him fall off a cliff or be in a fire. I don't know. Just some... You know, don't, don't ask They're me to rewrite this fucking Alley. movie. It's Kansas. Okay, have him be in a tornado, but don't elongate it like this. It's fucking stupid. I don't know this friend who was posting memes about it for right after the movie came out. I've never... Been this would be Mr. Bunch. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I still see them in my memories to this day. You know, I, I, I thought it was a sequel to Twister. I was waiting for Helen Hunt. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could have been Bill Paxton. He was still alive. The reason I was joking about that is because I'm with Adam, actually. I read this tornado scene as Pa Kent showing Clark how to be a hero in that he was irrationally so scared of people finding out his son was an alien and he'd be, like, dissected or worse. So he says, I'm going to sacrifice myself to protect your secret. Me personally, yeah, I would have loved to see Clark break away and save his dad. But, but I, I think it's that, it's that moment of, I know this is what deep down he wants, and I can't, I can't take that from him. And it's also important for the rest of the movie where it's like, his whole thing is that the world wouldn't accept you. And he didn't want to expose himself. Ultimately, he has to make that decision on his own. Once he gets the other perspective, preference wise, I do prefer the heart attack death more, but I'm totally, I'm totally fine with this. Of all the things that get complained about in this movie that are ostensibly extremely controversial, this is not the one that I am going to fight against. The choices made in this scene and things later is 
what I regret most about us not getting a direct sequel for Henry Cavill. We're going to be talking about another death in another franchise here pretty soon that has the same problem with me, where I'm supposed to feel for it, but I don't because of the way it's filmed. Adam, I go back to your point that you made way back when we did Burton's Batman, where the reason the death of his parents means so much is because it was by a random thug. I think this should have been something that hit us at a time where things like this were going to hit us. And it just doesn't because of the way it's played out and the, the, the drama. I mean, this is straight out of a fucking high school play where we're having someone just get out of the moment so that he can hold his hand up and say, don't touch me. I want you to preserve your secret and we're going to just keep it, keep it on screen for a number of seconds before it finally happens. No, this isn't the way it fucking happens in a tornado. I got news for you. I haven't been in one myself, but I can pretty much guarantee that this isn't how it fucking happens. Yet, here we are with Snyder with his fucking slow motion telling the world that you're supposed to care for this, guess what? I don't. I'm glad it did for you guys. It doesn't. It's work. not slow motion. It's just elongated as far as how long he lingers on that shot. It feels slow yeah, motion. But, but compared to what Zack Snyder did in his previous movies, where I say 300 is a 20-minute movie stretched out to two hours uh, because of all the slow motion, <laughs> and if you want the, ner- the, the, the nerdy cop-out answer to everything you just said is, well, it's a comic book. <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate smart-ass response to everything. Well, it's a superhero movie. This belonged in fucking Sucker Punch. It didn't belong in a Superman movie. Lois then tells Perry that she's dropping the story. Clark goes back home and tells his mom that he finally found his real parents and where he came from. We then cut to the Pentagon where they discovered a ship has come into the atmosphere, and they conclude that whatever is in that thing is probably planning a dramatic entrance. And a dramatic entrance it makes as we have Zod leaving a star scream from the first Transformers-type message that says, we are not alone, and then requests that people turn the individual that they, we have sheltered over to him within 24 hours, or the world will suffer the consequences. How do you guys feel about this ominous message? I remember this actually being... I, I think it was like released on the internet, or there was, was some a trailer. kind of... It was a yeah. Promo- yeah, that's what I thought. It was a promotional yeah. trailer. Not one that played in theaters, per se, but it was like a YouTube ad and stuff. Why this is dumb is because... Nobody knows about this Superman. It's He's still in secret. This would have worked a lot better if there were news reports or rumors of there actually being a superhuman guy running around doing these things. So there's like a witch hunt to go get him, all in the sense of humanity's survival. It does work as far as putting Clark in that perspective of like, do I hand myself over? But I think this would have been a fun way to show, fun's not the right word, but prove Podcamp's point that humanity is not ready for you and will turn on you because of what you're capable of and ultimately your potential to destroy the world. Yeah, you know what? If we would see more than one media outlet, maybe more than just the Daily Planet, so that, mm-hmm. or maybe somebody else even in the Daily Planet who's like, look, we know that this guy's here. We need to help these people find him. Yeah, there's something good there about humanity, not are they all worth saving, even those that would sacrifice you for them. Lois says that she won't give up where Clark is, and she is then taken into custody. We're then seeing Clark in another flashback be bullied and in turn rescued by Pete and Jonathan. And by the way, the Sullivan sign behind them, this, this is an homage to Chloe Sullivan from Smallville. Because <laughs> Zack really? Snyder was a huge... Yeah, I was going to say, I wonder what happened to her. Zack Snyder has said that he was a big fan of that show, so he wanted to put some kind of homage to it in here. Clark then goes to confessional and asks if he should turn himself in and he's not sure if he even trusts the people of Earth. This conversation literally under the stained glass Jesus right above his shoulder. Oh, oh god dang. 
freaking... I could have a mole on my nose and it wouldn't be that on the nose. Jesus. Literally. <laughs> yeah, like, it's... Zach, <laughs> Zach, Clark Kent is not Matt Murdock. Catholicism is not is not a part of his character. No. In fact, I think it would be important that, of all people, Superman would not necessarily rush towards one religion or another. I do remember this being... and. Guys, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't this also promoted through churches, too? Wasn't there oh, yeah. some kind yep. of... Yeah, yeah there were screenings and stuff yeah. at churches. Yeah, they did, like, the van pools to go sell theaters and stuff like that. Yep. Superman then goes to Lois and tells her that he's surrendering to mankind. We then get this cute reference to hope, or S as we know it. Ugh. Boy, this is that Goyer-type writing that I just can't stand. That's... Comic what about suit? That, that is comic book accurate as could be, though. I want to say. I, I well, I, I, I get that. No, 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 no. Let me let me back up. I'm not saying the the whole thing being referenced is the symbol for hope is bad. What I'm saying is how it's said here, where he's just like the S stands for hope, and she goes, "So was it for Superman?" And then there's like a thing that interrupts her. Oh, that's the kind of. Show oh yeah, I was the, yeah about. fucking Robin yeah. moment from Dark Knight Rises. I do think on the surface, I think Goyer can craft a story, not a screenplay. But this moment Matt. of him in handcuffs and everything else, I love him being marched in in cuffs. I do, too. Yeah, yeah and that was one of the first yeah. like promotional you know, movies we saw. It was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was like that and the shot of him with, with, in front of the bank vault. Yeah, yeah in front no of the vault. vault and that was where the yells about the suit were first coming out, too. All of it's starting to come to back to me as I talk to you guys. Yeah. <laughs> was when we saw that shot of him getting shot in that bank vault. Yeah, this movie's like Vietnam where, you know, as you <laughs> memories start coming back. And I don't just say that because I think as many people die in this movie as in the Vietnam War <laughs> totality. Oh, we're getting close. Superman swears that he is not their enemy. Zod is. Zod and Fiora show up, and can I say that I love the concept of these suits that they wear? It comes into play that Superman is not accustomed to the Kryptonian air, and it acts as a kryptonite to him. I thought this was a very clever way of doing kryptonite without having kryptonite. And Matt, you have screamed about the presence of kryptonite through all these films. This was pretty clever, I thought. Yeah, this is actually something I would never think of, where... A, Zod and company have to wear these breather suits, like almost like astronaut. It's the inverse of what we wear to go into outer space. It's backed up, but this has the dumbest thing in the movie. There is no good reason why they need Lois Lane to go on that ship. Outside of the fact None. she's Lois Lane. Yep. It, it pisses me off to no end. Other than the, I mean, yeah, there's no reason because they already know who yeah. he is. So there's, she there's, says, yeah. Zod says, I need Lois Lane. When they get there, like, Feyor's like, you, come with us. I'm like, there's no reason why. Because she's there as a proxy? Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, we need her so she can get all the exposition that's important for the third act. It's it's shitty writing. Uh, and yeah. I, I criticize that about David Goyer a lot, where, you know, he comes up with great concepts, uh, and he can map out how to get from A to B, but when it comes to dialogue and how scenes actually happen... He, he doesn't doesn't know how to make it work. Yeah, no, I agree. There's just <laughs> it's inexcusable, inexplicable. By the way, Fiora was supposed to be played by Gal Gadot. Gal Gadot. Yep. And then she got pregnant, and Snyder promised her another role. And God, I wish she had gotten this role and not the one that he gives her. Disagree. So I love this Fiora. This Fiora old is freaking fantastic. Yeah, th- I mean, this is Ursa, right? I mean, no, is, is that's who it's supposed to be. <laughs> yes. No, I know, <laughs> I but. <laughs> she is, but she's different enough. And she, well, we're going to get into her yeah. here in a little bit, but yeah. Fiora comes down to take Superman and Lois on their ship, and he's brought before Zod. He literally goes before yeah. Zod because he can't breathe. 
We then get an admittedly cool and very Snyder-esque sequence of Superman imagining he's drowning in skulls. I thought this was pretty awesome, actually. Right, here's why I hate this. Not, not for the aesthetic reasons. Okay. Zod's argument is just, help me or die. He, he, like, because... I don't want to keep comparing this to Batman Begins, but what works so well about the twist with Raish is that Bruce really understands where he's coming from and what the League believes in, and he makes that decision to not take a life. And that's really where the divide is. Here, he's just met Zod. Zod has portrayed himself as nothing but a terrorist up to this point. He doesn't try to woo him or tempt him beyond just, it's your, like, bloodline, you know, like, saving, bringing back our world. I think Zod would be a lousy politician. There was a better way this could have been written to make him a more interesting villain and to also give Clark an actual moment or like a whole section where he doesn't know what to do. But Snyder goes to the extreme of Zod's just the villain and uh, Superman's not given enough dialogue or internal monologue to really wrestle with this, with the morals of what he's being presented. Yeah, there's a there's a story where instead, to Matt's point, you know, Zod shows up and says, you know, Kal-El, we've been looking for you across the stars. We found you. Let's rebuild our people. You know, and maybe that's... You want something for Lois to do? She knows that that's not on the up and up. You know, Superman's torn literally between his two worlds again. And after only starting to help Zod, does he realize it's going to doom humanity? Then he's got to make a choice. Yeah, I mean, Matt said Zod comes here with the binary all-or-nothing choice from the get-go. And for a military leader that's brilliant, he's not very. Yeah, he's also not very smart at Krypton because he just comes in, guns ablaze, and shooting the council. Yeah. Zod talks about how he searched for Kal-El through withered outposts of Krypton until a distress beacon that Kal-El mm-hmm. triggered led them here. And it's within his power to save his own race, as you guys just said. Zod then requests the Codex so that Krypton can live on in Earth. Why do these movies feel the need to keep bringing Krypton to Earth? It's like Transformers and Cybertron. We see this over and fucking oh, over. Oh, I'm so sick God. of terraforming. And, and terraforming can go away. <sighs> yeah, and, and this, you know, I, there's something else that this movie does that I I famously protested against on various shows. But I was like, it's the same damn thing we've seen a bunch of times where it's we're going to reshape the, the world in our image, but we have to wipe out all of humanity to do so. And again, Clark could have the struggle if humanity actually sold him out to Zod. Exactly. Yeah. Definitely. Just poor writing here. I mean, God, it, it, it feels weird like because, you know, time. yeah, there's a two and a half hour movie. They definitely have the time. It's just the three of us seem to have been complaining about Goyer's writing forever, and we're going to be complaining about it again once we get to Blade. Uh, the dude just doesn't uh, know how to connect A to B. Depends which Blade we're talking about. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm, I'm not talking about all of them. I'm talking about particular yeah. ones. Zod tells Superman that he killed Jor-El, and he'd do it again if it meant the salvation of his people. See, why would you tell him that if you're trying to convince him? I know. <laughs> That's the thing. He doesn't, Meanwhile, come, lo- he doesn't come across like... A brilliant military strategist that literally was no. the military leader. He comes across as like a fundamentalist, and that's a different type of being and a different type of performance. He comes across as yeah, Hitler. he's Hitler. Where it's yeah. all it's yeah. all eugenics and DNA mm-hmm. uh, and brute force, not necessarily playing the long game and strategizing. You know what, Krypton did look like uh, Germany. I'll give it that. You said that not, not me, very diverse. We're listening. Yeah, for the record, <laughs> none of us are Jewish on this podcast. None. Meanwhile, Lois is loaded into a cell and meets Jor-El. 
who <coughs> leads her through a very video game-like sequence of him telling her where bad guys are God, as they go through this, the ship. This, I, this was stupid as this fuck. This was like in uh, the Doom movie with The Rock where it goes first person. <laughs> Never saw it. You're not missing much, but there's a scene okay. that movie where it literally turns into the video game and it cuts where it's the first person where he's running around with a gun shooting aliens. That's what this is. He's fucking Siri. Where it's turn left, <laughs> shoot here at 500 feet, turn around and shoot that guy. It's so fucking dumb. And he's doing it uh. aping Marlon Brando's I don't give a shit performance. Because when he's doing this, he could give it. Which I guess maybe because he's supposed to be computer simulation. You know, he's not supposed to care, but wow, what a... This is me in the movie theater going, I, I, I don't know what I'm watching. Did she really just get freaking freed and escaped by a hologram dead Jorel? Yes, yes, she did. It should be said, and I want to reiterate before people start coming at me with pickaxes, that I had a lot of compliments for this film for its first two-thirds. I thought there were a lot of things that I noticed this time that I did not notice last time that I really enjoyed. But it's from the time that fucking Paul Kent dies to, to, to the end of this movie, I'll go ahead and say that, that this movie just goes on a downward slide and it never fucking recovers. Like, this is all just stupid stupid, stupid shit that should have been recounseled in the development phase. Like, no one should have taken this and said, all right, redo this, because it doesn't make a lick of sense. You are not connecting the dots. You are just doing things just to do them. And Snyder is the worst filter in the world because he's just fucking putting it on screen, making it look well, pretty. Well, for the record, I don't think no one would have been the right person considering how flimsy a lot of the writing in The Dark Knight Rises is. Well, yeah, but he, he has been proven. You know, oh, so he certainly has, he has been... but I'm sure there's someone they could have gotten to really flesh this out. Guillermo del Toro. No, because del Toro <laughs> is also not the best writer. I hate to say it. His spin, when he when he doesn't have to translate is when he does his better movies. Um, if, only, if only Warner Brothers DC had I don't know like an office full of writers that could put words to pictures. <laughs> yes. Yeah, considering how many people like comic book writers offered their input throughout the development process and even before, you know, Grant Morrison being a big one. You know, there's a lot of people they could have gone to who, unlike David Goyer respect the comic book medium mm. that could have really made this work. But as it is, the only way Russell Crowe could have looked more disinterested if he, is if he had a pizza to his right. Or a telephone on Krypton uh, on that ship. <laughs> <laughs> Superman then leaves by floating backwards. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And this fucking Christ-like book. Literally. Why? See, this is when it was just so... It was already driven in our throats by this time. And now it's like, it's fucking... They're putting a stake right in our fucking hearts with this. This is just... Oh my god, it's so fucking overwhelming. Yeah, this is just one of the moments where it's, you do it once, twice, fine. We're up to like four or five times of this Christ imagery, and there is nothing more in your face than this one. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is especially yeah. freaking like full screen IMAX. You might as well put the thorn of the crown of thorns on Kal-El at this point. This is just <laughs> takes it from being an homage to just almost insulting. Yeah, if I did not know it any better... I would swear Henry Cavill is Jim Caviezel. I was just about to fucking say that, you fucking asshole. I was just about to say, I bet Jim Caviezel really pushed to be in this That's who Zack Snyder thought he actually hired. He was confused day one on set. <laughs> Superman goes to rescue Lois, which kind of starts a trend here. Yeah, I'm sure this will never happen again. 
But you know what? I want to go ahead and say, and again, I know I'm praising something that, that Snyder does, but I do like how this looks. As Superman's pulling her out, and in, instead of landing, he just kind of rolls with the explosion. I thought that was a nice touch because we're shielding her from all the fire, and we haven't seen him do that before. Yeah, once he gets himself off the cross here, and he goes down and he you yeah. know, gets the ship, this is a great little moment of him turning around and yeah, him being the heat shield for her coming into Earth and not crash landing. It's a, it's a great little scene, yeah. Meanwhile, Zod and Fiora, they interrogate Martha Kent as Superman arrives, and I hope all people who want a Superman punching something were happy, because that's what we get for the next 50 fucking minutes. I love <laughs> this so much. What, him at the farm, or just the rest of the movie? No, of Superman showing up, and don't you talk about just beat the shit out of him for touching his mother. There is something fantastic about Superman beat the shit out of Zod for threatening his mother. I like the concept, but again, like it seems like he's pleasing the fanboys because we're seeing close-ups of him punching him for the next five minutes. Yes, because you, you, you know what this is? We finally get a Superman movie where he can fight like Superman, which we've never, ever gotten before. We finally get a... We never... We, we finally get, for maybe the first time in any of these, a superhero fight that feels like a superhero fight. This is the only time I think I have seen where it feels like we're watching superhumans fight one another, unless they're in a mechanized... Now that you say that, doesn't this movie play more like just a stylized two-and-a-half-hour version of those first two movies we reviewed back in March? It feels that way to me, especially when we get him fighting the bad guys here. Well, I think that's just based on the fact that Zod is the main villain. You're going to have that connection. I mean, it Mm -hmm. certainly is taking the first two Donner films and making it a one movie instead of technically two. I, I love when Superman calls him a motherfucker, or I just heard that wrong. So it's like, you motherfucker! Like, <laughs> this is where I, I feel like an old man, because the next 50 minutes is white noise, and it gives me a headache. Yes, you're right. They feel like superheroes, but they also feel like none of these punches are having any effect, so it feels exactly. redundant and pointless. Because I know these two guys can't hurt each other until the script requires it to. Like, mm-hmm. their punches, they're not bleeding. The fucking CGI reminds me of the Matrix sequels where it's all rubbery and shit as they're flying around. I don't jump it a bit ahead, because the Smallville and Metropolis parts are technically two different fights. I like that Superman standing up for his mother, which... You know, really ties into the next one, so they planted the seeds at least. <laughs> but, but 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 yeah, this is I'm sort of with Garrett where I I'm not gonna say love, but I really appreciate the first part of this movie. The minute they get on that ship, it's hard for me. It does not win me back. There is a touch I do like here, like when Zod is feeling the effect of all his senses acting up at once, like Clark did towards the beginning. That wraparound is great. I do like that, and he's just kind of flying away here. I like it. I don't think um, it makes sense time-wise in that it always irks me with that. That Clark was on this planet for years, and it finally happened, where the Kryptonians show up. The only one that really feels that way is Zod, and it happens after he's been here five minutes. So I, I think it's important to see that he's feeling it, too. It just, it's not clean. Well, every time we see Fiora, she's wearing that fucking suit. Yeah, it's a shame, too, so, I'd like to see it off. And this Superman's version of saving people is telling them to get inside. It's not safe. <laughs> get inside so you can be safe from the... Yeah, from the as these things fall on you. ...for the vehicles that may come crashing through the building yes. that I tell you to hide in. Yes. It's the poor IHOP. Is it IHOP, <laughs> Denny's, whatever? It's forever people. Yeah, it's, I, it's IHOP. <laughs> and by the way, so the budget of this movie was about $250 million. Do you know how much of that was advertising dollars? 
Mm. At least a hundred. Before this movie even hit screens, it had already made a hundred and sixty million dollars because that's how much was spent on fucking product placement in this movie. Good for some executive who got this movie paid for. They only had to spend about $90 million of their own money on it because of all the fucking advertising. And this IHOP shit and this Sears and all this stuff. I mean, I thought he was going to throw a Honda or something. Like, all of the fucking product placement gets really overwhelming around this time. I too. guess when you can't have a cigarette ass like you had in 78, you got to go somewhere else. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we get this fight between Superman, Zod, and Fiora, and uh, we have planes falling and buildings destroyed by the dozen. The outcry of the destruction in this movie really changed superhero movies forever. It affected the sequel to this movie, which we'll talk about at the end. And it wasn't long after this that we started seeing massive character battles take place in an abandoned airport. (laughs) (sighs) But the fucking outcry was real. And Matt, you and I have joked about this on countless podcasts over the years. This is just fucking destruction porn for the sake of destruction porn. This is no better than any fucking Transformers film we've gotten in the last 15 years. Oh, God, this is... uh... Snyder Unchained is what I refer this third act to, where I don't feel that a Superman project was the best way to show the fallout or scale of a 9-11 attack. God, you know, yeah. the imagery is inescapable. It's not that you can't have destruction in a superhero movie. My problem is how Superman actively participates in it. I don't need the movie to stop and have him save people, per se, but you can't have a scene where... Superman has a tanker truck thrown at him, and rather than catch it and put it down, he just jumps over it and lets it hurl into the foundation of a building, and it immediately collapses. And then tell me he's okay because he saves Lois Lane later on. That stuck out to me, too, watching it this time. The the hypocrisy drives me nuts. And his, his, his valuing of human life, or life in general, only comes into play for the most infamous scene in this movie. It is mm-hmm. not established anywhere up to that point. The wanton destruction and death and stuff in this movie, I think, has an important place. doesn't bug me whatsoever. And I think it's important to see the destruction, where I think in most Marvel movies they treat it as a joke, where I don't care. So I appreciate seeing the death and destruction. I, I do. I look at something like Age of Ultron, where they make jokes out of it. Oh, Jarvis, is that building clear? Ha ha. Okay, let's destroy it. Or let's drop a fucking town down and act like we cleared everybody away. I think it's become a joke elsewhere, That I think it's actually nice to show that in these type of scenarios, there would be death and destruction. I need the 9-11 imagery. I think that is a step too far that infuriated me when I was watching this in the movie theater. Other than that, I want that kind of... I I want the sequel that shows he's grown from it. That's where I think the problem is, is we don't have that. But I do want it in this film, when we have a year one Superman. To your point about the Avengers, I do agree that a problem is that they're, they're sometimes to make light of it. But in the first Avengers, they show not only them saving ordinary people yes. and communicating, they show the ramifications because after that battle's done, yep. they show on the news report the wall of people that died. That's an important point. In this movie, after the day is saved, we cut to what we cut to, which is played as a triumphant ending without assessing the dark ramifications of what has transpired. 
Yeah, that, that was going to be my exact point. Matt, you outlined that perfectly. It's not the fact that there's a lot of it here. It's the fact that there's no ramifications of it. And he doesn't even think twice about leaping before that truck comes at him. There's nothing of it here where he's looking. He's like, oh, God, what have I done to these people? And Matt, you said you don't need scenes of him rescuing people. I do need that. I do need Superman to at least look like he cares about these people. He doesn't look like he gives a shit. He just wants these people to not accomplish what they're trying to accomplish. And that's what we're supposed to be rooting for. I'm not rooting for that. I'm rooting for uh, Superman to actually act like Superman. And he's not doing that here. The colonel finally comes to the conclusion that Superman is not their enemy. And he flies away. Superman then heads home where Martha says, nice suit. What is it that these movies <laughs> giving Diane Lee Martha Candy's stupid lines? I know. Because they do the same thing at BVS we talked about last year with, oh, I figured yeah. the cape. This woman yeah. must have brain damage from these from these traumatic events. <laughs> and she just can't process anything. You know, one of the choices that I like they made is that they, they don't try to play whether or not who knows Superman is Clark Kent and who isn't. And I like we don't even have to go down that road. Yeah, oh, thank God, because there's no... Lois doesn't have to figure it out. I'm so yeah. glad we're past that, because that, that secret identities, that's a, a benchmark of the McCarthy era, and we're at a point now where in the MCU movies, secret identities are, were never a thing. The first Iron Man movie ends with I am Iron Man, which is basically saying, we're not going to do that unless you're Spider-Man. And even then, they, they reveal his identity and, you know, pull back on that, but... Yeah. Batman's the only one they keep doing that with. And I thought the Batman was going to be where they subvert that with Nygma knowing that Bruce Wayne is Batman, but they pull their punches on that, too. And, I mean, look, they don't pull their punches here because there's nothing but punching for the last 50 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Lois shows up and says that she knows how to stop that. Yes. Meanwhile, this is so dumb. I know it because is... I was stupidly brought onto the ship with no rhyme or reason. Except to find out how to kill them. <laughs> Meanwhile, Zod is told where the Codex is and orders that they release the world engine, and it crashes into the Indian Ocean while the other half flies over Metropolis. The Phantom Drive is then initiated. God, all these fucking... You get the gobbledygook like this. Like, this is when I start tuning out of fucking comic book movies, when you start getting into geeky fucking this is, uh, phrases like... This is like, like, oh, God. It's also the Dark Knight <sighs> Rises with the clean, yep. yes. the clean slate. The clean slate. And all this other dumb mm-hmm. shit. Like, it's... Oh, God, I, I hate the third act of this movie so much. I can't, I just bring, it, bring, in, bring in Onicron. Like, <laughs> like seeing Devastator's scrotum would not be the most surprising thing in the movie. Destruction comes full force to Metropolis as the Phantom Drive is expanding Earth into Krypton. This is also when we're hearing the name Superman in full force for the very first time. And then Jor-El begs Zod to stop. As Superman fights the Matrix, apparently. Yeah, it's the giant, uh, it's like those robot things. The Sentinels. Uh, which is also yeah. weird. I, Jack Kirby's here to fucking sued them if he was still alive. Holy shit. Mm-hmm. Like, oh. But yeah, this is also, if I see one more motherfucking sky portal, I swear to Christ. Oh, <laughs> God. I can't, I can't take it anymore. I've lost how, how We're going to see a lot of them, dude. Swirly garbage <laughs> shit in the sky. Like, how many? Yep, like, we're going to be seeing it a lot. What, the fifth movie we reviewed that has this? Mm-hmm. And we haven't even gotten in, into Marvel. Yeah, yet. and that doesn't include the Ninja Turtles review we did that won't that won't see the light of day because one of those had a swirling yep. vortex of death. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Superman powers the machine down and heads into Zod's ship to destroy it, saying Krypton had its chance. We get a Wilhelm scream as Fiora attacks and the bomb is finally dropped. Superman, of course, his priority is to save Lois, so he does that. Yeah, fuck you, Mr. And Maloney. then. <laughs> 
<laughs> and then powers them out of harm's way. Lois and Clark, they have their first kiss, and then he flies off to face All right, God. for fuck's sake. All this stuff has happened. They I know. He gets saved, but he still finds time to get some sugar from Lois. Go fuck yourself. Zod says Superman made the mistake of choosing humans over them, and he is here for his people, who are now gone. Another fight breaks out, with Zod even uh, throwing a LexCorp truck at him. <laughs> yeah, and there's a and, uh, satellite. Waytech satellite. And you know what? And I didn't really think of the Matrix with the machine up in the air, maybe a little bit, but this is when I really felt Matrix Revolution. Yeah, the um, Smith-Neo fight in the rain, where it's all, yes. it's all rubbery, these punches have mm-hmm. weight to them. And some really bad dialogue. Where did you grow up? On a farm? Yeah. Oh, God. Ugh. This is the David Goyer that I can't stand. We then get the death everybody was talking about. Superman has Zod in a headlock as Zod starts sending lasers toward people who are just standing there. And Superman makes the choice to save them by breaking Zod's neck and killing oh, him. Now, now you start valuing gotta, human life. All right. Let me, let me just say, I like this in concept. I like the fact that he has to make this choice. Except... Snyder really dropped the ball on it because he didn't enter a shot of the people walking away. He chose instead to focus on Lois and Superman. This negates everything he's trying to say here and instead does what this entire Superman era, the DCEU, was always criticized for. Just put the focus on Lois and Superman. Fuck the people. It's funny that it's the same thing that Superman 2 does where it's like, Superman 2, you could argue he kills General Zod by throwing him to that crevice. If that was too ambiguous for you, this is emphatic murder. And, mm-hmm. yes, there there was no alternative. But that's only because they found the most contrived way to have Superman break someone's neck. Because there was no other option. They wrote themselves into the corner they wanted to so they could have their own protective shield. Which, uh, here's the problem. I'd be, I could understand this decision if this whole movie was about Superman and Clark wrestling with the value of life. This is the same person who let his father die to protect what his aspirations were for him and his identity. I read this as him outright rejecting all of his Kryptonian heritage and saying, I am a human and I want nothing to do with the alien part of me. I I sort of criticize Batman Begins for doing this too. It's not that superheroes should not kill. I just think you have to come up with a more concrete reason for a character like Superman beyond just, well, he had no other choice. I'm not saying he had to fly Zod to another planet, and I criticized Avengers Endgame for this. Tony Stark has omnipotent power with the gauntlet. What does he do? He commits genocide. He, he does violence, because that's the only thing writers can come up with. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's hard for me to criticize on a writing level, because it's like, you know, they, they set this up, and it delivers. That's only because this is what they wanted to do. And, you know, it is what it is. I'm tired of arguing about it. I don't agree with the decision. All right, let's hear Adam defend it. Adam, go ahead. Why do you think I'm going to defend it? Because <laughs> you've defended every other bad decision in this movie. That's why. Oh. <laughs> well, yeah, this is a great decision, and I'm absolutely fully on board. Are you serious? Stop, Zod. Think of the people. Yeah, I am. Not only do I agree with it, it works for me not, o- not only on a storytelling point, but the ramification of it immediately afterwards gets me emotionally as well. The way that it's shot, where the rest of the music kind of tones down. Michael Shannon delivering a nice bit of dialogue, a nice, you know, few lines there. Superman snapping his neck and then immediately being crushed with the emotion of what he did, I think works so, so well. Because I don't think much 
else has really made him question who he's going to be, how he's going to be the hero he can be, what decisions he's going to have to make. And I think this does exactly that. Um, him dropping to his knees and that just blood-curdling scream he lets out afterwards. Like, I feel that immensely. I think this is an important scene for this Superman. The whole superheroes, and I'm not, this is for you guys at all, but the whole superheroes doesn't kill, says who? They all do, other than, there is one whose raison d'etre is to not kill. That's Batman. Other than that, I don't want to hear shit one about superheroes don't kill. Wonder Woman literally has, it's one of the best lines of comics, where it's, you know the difference between you and me, Bruce? When I take care of my villains, they stay taken care of. Superman has killed multiple times. He doesn't flat out murder, and to me, in this moment, he does it to save a family. Now, would I like to see that family maybe still huddling there looking at him? That's a good point I never thought of. But guess what? Tony Stark has killed a shit ton of people. Watch Captain America, the first Avenger. Fucking Captain America goes through Germany with freaking automatic weapons. Okay? It's not that superheroes don't kill, and I can't stand that argument. Ugh. Separate from that, yeah, I absolutely love the ending to this. I think it's important for this Superman. I do. So, I normally hate that argument as well, but I think with Superman in particular, you need a damn good reason. I do too. You know, because Captain America, that's a war. And they were Nazis. That, that's the way yep. you've got to run that. Iron Man, warmonger, literally a warmonger, a profiteer. You know, that line, I don't, did, did that come before the Punisher said, you hit him and they get up, I hit him and they stay down? Because if so, Marvel should be suing those bastards. Cause yeah. It's that same thing. But yeah, I do think it is because I, and this is again, I think the next movie that shows Henry Cavill's Superman growth from this moment, we miss out on. I think this is a defining moment, and we never get to see the ramifications of it, and that's a shame. You see the immediate ramification, as you mentioned. Yeah. But, but the, the way this movie wraps up does not capitalize on that. No, we don't get to see the change in him, which I do think this sets up. Superman tells the general that he's here to help, but it will be on his terms. Okay. Sorry. Oh. This oh. is the worst. Oh. This is the worst scene in the movie. Terrible. Oh. Because the, re- the 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 implications of this are setting you up for the dictator injustice type of Superman, where it's you can't tell me what to do. I'm going to do whatever I want. This is this is horrifying for Superman to have this realization so early and to just outright blackmail. It makes him look like an asshole. To, to me, it gets worse than that in. DC's own retconning of this by changing this character into Martian Manhunter <laughs> down the road. So this is Martian Manhunter. Jesus. And not only that, if you look at the, the nameplate on the woman that's with him, that's um, that's how Gardner's girlfriend, that's Star Sapphire. Yeah, and, and this general uh, is a reference to Guardian. Yeah. Which is a deep cut. I know Garrett's like, what the, you fucking nerds. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You guys might as well be talking Chinese at this but, point. Yeah, this is such a this oh. is such a miscalculation. Feels so out of place. And, and yeah, like you could have him say, like, look, you could have this conversation without him destroying a satellite. He he goes to the general. He said, "I came to you willingly in handcuffs. I am wi- I I want I I consider myself a human. I have proven that by choosing that over my genetic bloodline. But you have to you have to work with me." Instead, this is, you know, the ultimate power fantasy gone wrong. 
All right. So he tells his mom that he is going to find a job where he can keep his ear to the ground and start asking questions. And then we cut to him at the Daily Planet. Where did he get his... Uh, Never mind. I don't know where he got his degree. Okay. Kansas U. Uh, uh, Gotham Online University. (laughs) (laughs) And we finally get credits on Man of Steel. One of the most animated discussions. Welcome to the planet. I do like that. Welcome to the planet. I do like that too. Oh boy, but was that all we liked about this movie? (laughs) Oh man. You know, this has got to be one of the most animated discussions we've ever had since we started this particular site. So let's get our final thoughts. Scale of 1 to 10. What do we think of Man of Steel? Adam? We're going to do the animated movie next. Is that what you said? No. (laughs) Matt, we got our twist. All right, Man of Steel. I went into this film with pretty dang low expectations. And when I walked out of it initially, those expectations were realized as, eh, this is fine. When I saw it again, it was still, eh, this is fine. It's the Simpsons joke. You know, aren't they? Meh. What's that feel like? Meh. Superman as a whole has not had a lot of great movies. And I think it's kind of important to realize that. We're used to, at this point, Batman getting rebooted over and over and over. It's kind of the joke. Superman, this is the first time he's been rebooted. If you look at Superman Returns as a continuation, which is what it was, this is the first reboot of Superman. I think it was important that they tried to go a different way, and I appreciate them doing that. I think the casting in this movie is pretty damn great. I, I don't have complaints really across the board. The music... Is forgettable for me, except for one or two moments, and those moments, I think, are, are really well done. We discussed a lot. The first half, the first two-thirds of this movie seem different than the ending, and I do think the first half to two-thirds is a lot stronger. However, I go with a lot of the ending just because I am okay with the real-world stake that they were that this film was bringing out. I like the, I don't like the destruction. I like the consequence of what happened. I like the choices that are made. And see, I kind of feel like Superman 1 and 2 are almost one movie. And based on that, I think this is the second best Superman movie that's out there. You know, it's, this has grown on me even better. I think it's aged better than most other Superman films that are out there. Yeah. Uh, this one, though, is a score. Like, it's, it's not bad, it's not great, but it's it's good. You know, it's a good movie. It's a seven, solid seven for me. I don't rush out to watch it, but if it's on, there's good chunks of this movie that I'll leave on, watch, and enjoy. Yeah, seven on ten. You gave it the 2013 Collins score, huh? Seven out of ten from Adam Bunch. Goudreau. You know, I opened this show, as the other two gentlemen did, by talking about the binary reaction to this movie where it's your one side or the other and i gotta be honest having rewatched this movie for the first time in a long time it wasn't a second viewing by any stretch but i've had a good amount of distance from man of steel exclusively because we did justice league and bbs and i knew that we were going to do this down the road so i didn't watch it in conjunction with those so i've gotten older you know it's 10 years later since this came out and my opinion is relatively the same but tethered down. I really liked this movie when I first saw it, but I was not one of those people who said it was without flaws. But I found myself making certain logistical concessions 
when defending it as a whole. And as I've become more analytical and more, I would say, cynical is not the right word, but as I've watched more movies and, and talked about them, especially in superhero terms, I think the, 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 what do you call it? The, the outline is here for the best Superman movie that's ever been made. But the problem is there's too much of the three C's. And I talked about this with BVS. It's got the same situation. Contrivances, conveniences, and convolutions. And a fourth one, complications. I think the stuff with the Codex and the Krypton aspects are too... They're too muddled and too complicated and weren't worth the time that was devoted to them. Cavill does a good job. And the title of this movie is correct. He is not Superman. But having said that, I do think the biggest problem with this movie is that it felt too much like a reaction to what Superman Returns and even the Donner films were criticized for, a lack of action. Because of Superman being this all-powerful superhero who, quite frankly, had not been utilized to his full potential in an action sense. But by doing so, it's too much of a loud encore to those comments. It's loud, it's bombastic, and borderline nonsensical for the last 50 minutes. The moment they get on that ship, there was some logical stuff I had early on, but I was rolling with it because I appreciated the new take, and it seemed like they were chartering a new direction for Clark without veering off from what makes the character interesting. But it turns into a dumb summer blockbuster. The last part of this movie is the same as all those Transformers sequels. It's the same as Independence Day 2. All the dumb movies that people like to comment and deride are visible here. I can't say it's any better. Yeah, the CG looks great. Don't get me wrong. But I think it's, it's too much. It's Snyder's problem. Visual excess at the expense of soulful storytelling and sensible storytelling. There's too many shortcuts and some really bad dialogue. So it's tough for me to assess this as a whole movie because while I don't love the first half, maybe a little bit more, I do really, really, really like it. But it all goes downhill for me after a certain point. So I'm going to land, because of that, I'm still going to go on a 6 on 10. Because there is more than half of this movie I like. But it's it's deeply flawed, and I do truly believe if there was more time devoted to this, because I don't think there was a need to rush this out a year after Batman ended. If you waited, really fine-tuned this, made it 20 minutes shorter, but added more story, you could have had a fantastic movie. But as it is, it's got too many problems that I just can't look past. But it's nowhere near as bad as people have made it out to be, and it's nowhere near the worst movie in the franchise that it spawned. So, softest 6 on 10 that I can possibly give. God, this movie's dumb. And if you were to ask David Goyer what a codex is, I doubt he could even tell you. I think they just made that word up on the spot, maybe after a couple doobies. And look, that's not a real criticism of it, because we're going to cover a lot of comic book movies that are dumb. There are a lot of them out there. We've already done it. We've covered so many that are dumb, but there are so many that are dumb and fun. There is no fun to be had here. And, you know, when I walked out of that screening way back in 2013, I was just thinking, what is it about this movie I liked? And before I wrote my review, I actually sat and I 
did a pros and cons, which I do, which I did with most reviews I did back then. Pros and cons of what I liked and what I didn't like. And it's one of those movies that back then the pros outweighed the cons. Today it's about even, but the problem is after rewatching this movie, the things that were good really stood out. The things that were bad really, really stood out this time. And I, I, I'm like Matt. I've seen this three times, maybe four times over the years. And I, I think that the more times I watch it, I, I notice the bad. And there is so much bad about this. And I'm sorry, I disagree with my colleagues about the Paul Kent death scene. We're going to be probably having this discussion again once we get to Spider-Man, because we're going to do that. There are parts of this movie that I really did like. God, I wish there was... You guys didn't want an origin story. I wanted more of him as a kid, gripping with his powers. And yes, we got a, 10 seasons of that on Smallville, but I, I, the horror behind that is what I really gravitated towards, like him understanding himself and then Zod realizing it as well. I thought we got a little bit of a hint of that towards the end of this movie, but the end of this movie is its fucking downfall. Forget all the destruction. Forget all that. It's just stupid. And... There are things... I, I think Henry Cavill was an inspired choice. I think there are things that he does right. Just certain things, like the end of this movie where he has his main enemy in his clutches and he has these people who are about to die. Yes, that is a powerful image. But yet, like I said, you didn't punctuate it by showing the people walk away. You didn't punctuate it by showing people be okay. That's what this character has meant to so many people over the years. Why are you negating all of that? I associate this with when I was a kid and I watched the first Superman movie. All I wanted to do was grab a blanket and pretend like I was flying through the house and pretend I was Superman. What kid wanted to be Henry Cavill's Superman? I didn't have any kids. Maybe you guys can tell me. I'm telling you right now, it's not inspired to me. Nothing about this movie inspires me. It's a dumb two-and-a-half-hour fucking Transformers destruction fest. And yet, there are things in the beginning I really did like. So I'm pretty parallel with Matt, but I want to go one less. Instead of going seven, I want to go two less. I want to go five. Same exact score I gave Superman Returns, just because I felt the exact same way, where the things they did right in that, they did right. The things they did wrong in that, they really fucked up. And I feel the exact same thing here. And you know what? And I think a part of it also has to do with the fact, and both of you guys have touched on this, we didn't get to see the ramifications of this. Warner Brothers had a knee-jerk reaction to people like us and the outcry on the internet and certain other review circles where there was a lot of outcry over the destruction in this movie. And they pulled out all the stops and did Batman versus Superman instead of us seeing Clark Kent grapple with what he's done in this movie. I think we needed that. And I think it's bad that Henry Cavill was not given that opportunity because I think there were things they could have done with this that really could have made this a better movie and could have upped it up in my eyes. But as it is, there's just nothing about this movie that really makes me look at it as a really good comic book movie. I think it passed the time. I think it's great as background noise, but it's not something I'm going to sit and just focus on for two and a half hours. Adam, you are aching to say something. Go ahead. I was going to say, no, that it's just, it feels crazy that this didn't get a sequel when this thing earned, what do you say, $650, $670 million, that it earned triple its budget, which nowadays would be a $300 million movie, but that they never directly sequelized, it just feels insulting. Absolutely. And damn them for doing what they did, but we'll talk about a lot of that next week. You know who agreed with me, boys? Richard Donner. (laughs) What a dick. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Towards the end, he was interviewed in some circles, and he said that 
what they've done with this character, it marks a dark day for filmmaking. And you didn't like what they did with this character. You didn't like what he stood for in this. And I understand that this is a guy who made those movies 40-something years ago, and he was standing up with what he believed in. But I, the more I watched this movie, the more I kind of agreed with him, where this didn't have anything that made this character seem super to me. He just seemed like another fucking comic book character, which by 2013, I was already starting to feel the exhaustion of seeing these movies over and over. Matt, would you have gone for a sequel to this? I think it was a necessity, and Snyder was on record saying he wanted to do Man of Steel 2 well before anything else that was developed. That would have been a good linchpin to go from Superman at the end of that movie being fully formed to fighting the veteran Batman that we see in BBS. Mm. Um, I think that's an important step to address. And that maybe could have been the another chance of Krypton being reborn because you could have done Brainiac. Maybe you reveal that part of Krypton survived, but it's in his possession. So Superman gets that second chance if he's still feeling guilty about murdering Zod. I think there's a lot of things you could have done with that. You could have done something like what they wanted to do Superman 3 where it's his his dark days, like him wrestling with himself. But Warner Brothers, impatient is being kind. And I don't believe that the... Impetus for Batman hating Superman with the, the opening of that movie, redoing Man of Steel, I don't believe that was organic. I think that was 100% reactionary. You can't convince me otherwise. And we'll definitely dig deep into that next week, which, yes, we are reviewing Batman v Superman again. People are asking, well, why are you doing that? You did that last year. I have a concrete reason why I won. This was my idea. I pushed for this. And there's, there's a real concrete reason why, and I will reveal all the context behind it next week. But we just watched it a year ago. What are you guys expecting when we watch Batman v Superman, the Superman edition? Adam, what are you expecting, sir? Uh, you know what? To me, I was excited to have, you know, Batman in that film the first time we went through it. I freaking love Ben Affleck's Batman, so that's where that focus was for me. Looking at it from the other side, I don't know if I'm going to have the same enjoyment because from what I remember, I don't think of BBS being very superman centric or even Superman friendly. So that's my thought. I'll see if it changes when I watch it. But I think it's going to be kind of depressing towards Superman. Yeah, it's definitely going to be a a shorter conversation versus the Batman side. Uh, We kind of teased it last year, but uh, there were a couple things we had to be hush-hush on to a certain point. And I'm ready to start yelling it over a loudspeaker starting next week with the initials LL. Mm, mm. I'm not talking about Lana Lane. I, I don't think she's in any of the 8,000 cuts of this movie. <laughs> so that does it for a very anime discussion of Man of Steel. We have so many things coming up. Matt and I are getting ready to record our fall horror reviews with gentlemen that we have worked with in the past named McDuffie. We still have to conclude Star Wars. We have all that coming up. And my God, if there has not been a fan base that's gone through more emotions the opening weeks of the year as the Jet fan base, I have no idea what fan base that is. But Matt is a part of that fan base and he is going through with his gangrene and Goudreau. If you want to hear somebody after each and every Jets game, tune in his shows that he releases, what, every Tuesday? I'm trying Tuesdays, yeah. Tuesdays. Those are fantastic. And I'm, Go back and listen to that first season of those podcasts. Those things are phenomenal. They're starting off great so far this season, but those things are great. They're great, even if it's depressing of how we got here. <laughs> but I'm going to be on one because I really I have a ton of questions I want to ask Matt. And uh, me and Matt are still continuing on with the wrestling podcast. We just released Halloween Havoc 95. Love them. the Monday Night Wars. Love them. These are... 
Oh, yeah. These have been super fun to do. I tell Matt every single time we get ready to record those that, God, I, am, I can't believe we're doing this, and I'm so excited to be doing them. <laughs> and I'm glad people are getting enjoyment out of it. I, a couple people text me throughout the course of the week, too, saying you know certain things. Like I got one text this week saying that he thought that Bam Bam was just an overglorified jobber, so we got into a little bit of discussion about that. Just fun stuff. I'm so glad we were getting to do that. So tune in. We're trying to do those every Monday, and uh, we're, we're going to see how it works out. Tune in for that. Boys. What a discussion. I hope we're still friends after this. I hope we're still friends after next week because we still have prequels to talk about. But until next week, when we discuss Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, again, this podcast stands for hope. Thanks, gentlemen. Once more, we survived the threat of war and found a fragile peace. I thought I could give you all the gift of the freedom from war, but I was wrong. It's not mine to give. We're still a young planet. There are galaxies out there, other civilizations for us to meet, to learn from. What a brilliant future we could have. And there will be peace. There will be peace when the people of the world want it so badly that their governments will have no choice but to give it to them. I just wish you could all see the Earth the way that I see it. Because when you really look at it, it's just one world. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. That's a bad outfit! Join us next week for an entirely new review. I see you are practiced in worshipping things that fly. The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. Mind over muscle. Edited by Garrett. Hey, that man's a miracle. Voiceovers by Adam. Ruler of Australia, activate the machine. Three Men and a Retrospective Podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such.
to leave you now. No hard feelings. We all have our little faults. Mine's in California. Trust yeah, well, it. Well, I mean, look, when they cast Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man, they didn't cast Leonardo DiCaprio yeah. or a heartthrob. You know, you mm-hmm. cast a guy who, for one movie, looked like he was in high school. <laughs> <laughs> For one, all right. Unless any, go ahead. Somebody was going to say something. No, I'm laughing at Matt. <laughs> for one movie, oh. like <laughs> the first one, he he, he looks believable <laughs> in high school, and then you get the Spider-Man too. It's a good thing he was in college. Because <laughs> Might as well make him a doc because he's got his post doctorate. He's been in so long. Oh, I guess it, the Unless... one thing that also gave me concern was everything that's told here could have been done in ten. Yep. I was just about ready. To, I, I had a note here that did you guys feel that this. This the pen. I almost called it Pandora. <laughs> Did you guys feel this Krypton stuff? <laughs> Don't forget, Amy Adams was just a couple years removed from winning an Oscar. She, she had just win. won for the Fighter. She did. No, she was nominated. That's right. She was nominated. She, she still has not You're won. Right. She's she's like she's no. like Bradley Cooper, where they keep nominating her, but they don't win. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't forget, Amy Adams. And then it didn't end with a laugh. You know, this mm-hmm. movie isn't very bright and funny, but, man, this is a damn good scene. And, um, God, I was going to make a point, and I completely forgot it. Uh, uh, Matt, go ahead. Still gets me to this day. I think this movie would work so much better if they had just done this scene differently. It sucks. I'll let uh, Matt go. Hang on. I'm taking a drink of something. Okay. No, you go, you go first, because this is one of the... I want to hear both of your points before I say mine. <laughs> yeah, he's also not very smart at Krypton because he just comes in, guns a blaze, and shooting the council. Yeah, I got to say, I'm also I'm kind of bothered that they are able to. Well, that doesn't happen yet. Never mind. Cut. All right. The only way Russell Crowe could have looked more disinterested is if he had a pizza to his right. Or a telephone on Krypton's uh, on that ship. <laughs> that would have been great if he handed Amy Adams a phone and said, "Here, throw this at people." That's the second time you've used that. Oh, mode. I will. I will never. I will never stop making fun of that. Uh, I mean, look. I mean, uh, and if you think I'm bad, you should have seen when South Park did it. But oh, at least sure. Russell Crowe has a good sense of humor because he like he thought it was hysterical. <laughs> It was already driven in our throats by this time. And now it's like, it's fucking, they're putting a stake right in our fucking hearts with this. This is just, oh my God, it's so fucking overwhelming. Yep. Um, this, this he goes to rescue story. Lois. Go ahead, no. go ahead. Nope. No, what nope, were you going to say? Needed. Go ahead. I was going to say, this okay. is... Oh, on this show, you say not needed? I know, you're filtering yourself? How dare you? This is go just ahead. one of the moments where it's... And some really bad dialogue. Where did you grow up? On a farm? Yeah. Oh, God. Ugh. This is the David Goyer that I can't stand. The funny part is this is so funny that freaking Shazam specifically made fun of this. <laughs> With, he's he's at one side of the city and... Oh, Mark damn. Strong. Yeah. yeah. Mark Strong for you, Sinestro. It's <laughs> the other side. And he's doing his villain monologue. And he's like, I'm sorry, do you think I could hear you from way over here? <laughs> it's it is one of the funniest jokes that I'm that I'm glad someone finally addressed, and I can't believe it took that long. I've never seen that movie. You would we'll like the it. first one a lot. Don't watch that's the second one. We'll have to. Oh, shit. <laughs> I think that's what the Warner Brothers executive said when they had to release it. Oh, I guess we have to watch it. 
it's not Batgirl. We have to. I, I'm like Matt. I've seen this maybe three times over the years. This was my fourth viewing. And I think... What? Nothing. That was my phone going off. Sorry. Oh, okay. I guess it died of acid indigestion.